You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. How'd you hurt your arm? I said. Me too. I'll tell you a story. Close your eyes. There were five of them. The Indian. The ex-slave. An explosive expert. Charles Darwin. And the masked bandit. They had one common enemy. Governor Odious. This Odious bad man? Oh, yeah. But first, I need a favor. You always stop at the same part when it's very beautiful. Do you want me to finish the story? Be a good bandit. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Morris Burstinski. It's my story, too. Also joining us is Professor Brian Hoyle. Hi. This week on the Projection Booth, we are looking at Tarsum Singh's The Fall. Released in 2006, the film is a very loose remake of the 1981 Bulgarian film Yo Ho Ho. The film stars Lee Pace as Roy, a stuntman who has had an accident that left him paralyzed from the waist down. While at the hospital, he befriends a little girl named Alexandria, played by Katinko Untaru. The film goes between the two of them at the hospital and a wild world of imagination crafted by the pair as a way to keep their minds off boredom and pain. We'll be spoiling the heck out of this movie, so if you haven't seen it, please track it down and come back after you've watched it. It's worth a look. Morris, when was the first time you saw The Fall, and what did you think? My first watch was only in the last month in preparation for this show. I saw the trailer at the beginning of the year while I was sort of thinking what films I was desperate to ask you to join in on the booth. Truth be known, I probably should have watched the film straight after requesting it because I think this film needs at least a dozen watches uh, to be able to really convey everything that it's about. When I watched the trailer, my first impression was that it was going to be like The Princess Bride as it showed an adult telling a child a story, and the film was going to go back and forth between the framing story and the story within the story. The truth is that only happens sort of superficially. We'll get more into that. So bottom line was I adored this film. The visuals angle is a plus without question, but the stories here of 
someone telling a story to someone in need of it, uh, who then takes charge of the direction of the story herself to help the storyteller's life really just sort of won me over. Time will tell how much more is revealed with each successive viewing because I really plan to make this film a constant part of my life from here on in. Wow. Brian, how about you? I actually saw it when it came out in uh, I think about 2006 in Dundee, where I live. I'd only recently moved here, and I was aware of Thompson's work. Mainly, I, I did my PhD on British art cinema, so a lot of my work as a sort of postgraduate and currently is on Derek Jarman. And Thompson started his career in TV commercials and then moved on to music videos. And in 1991, he had directed the video for R.E.M.'s Losing My Religion, which if you know the video, obviously it's, it's, it's quite well known. It's very Derek Jarman. The aesthetic, the look, owes a lot really to Jarman's film Caravaggio from 1986. And so that's when I first kind of realized that there was this person, Torsen, who had a very interesting sort of visual sense. And then his film The Cell came out in, I think, 2000. And I had a, the landlord of my local pub was a film buff, and he kept insisting to me that that film was extremely underrated and was visually stunning. And I kind of agree with the second half. I don't know where I am with the first half, but I saw The, I saw the Cell. Um, it was interesting, if not entirely successful. And so when The Fall came out in Dundee, I was intrigued and thought i should go see this but the other thing is it was you shouldn't judge a book by its cover and you shouldn't judge a film by the poster but um the poster is genuinely eye-catching and bizarre um i've got i actually have a poster uh, of a german poster of it on my wall going up my staircase in my house um the poster actually references quite overtly salvador dali's painting the face of may west that might be used as an apartment and i thought any film that's going to kind of do a salvador dali style poster also had to be worth a look so i saw it at my uh, my local art cinema and um was blown away by it and i decided from that point on it needed to be a part of my life <laughs> much like morris now has mm. i went into this one pretty cold i saw it at the toronto international film festival whenever it was playing there and had really no idea what it was about, what was going on. I think it just had, I pretty much would base a lot of my stuff going into that festival by the catalog and just looking at the pictures in the catalog and seeing, you know, what was there and what looked interesting. You know, of course, I would do more of the avant-garde programs. I would do the uh, Minute Madness stuff, but then to fill up the rest of the time, it's like, oh, this looks like it might be interesting. So one, uh, pretty much I based it on one single image and I was not disappointed. I was so captivated by this film and I count myself as being very lucky, like you, Brian, being able to see this on the big screen because it is just oh, yeah. enormous. Just the, some of the frames in here. I mean, every single shot in this movie is gorgeous and i cannot emphasize that enough of how just eye candy this movie is and that it tells compelling story at the same time wow that really does it for me i'm kind of with you when it comes to the cell i really like the look of the cell but when i think about it and i just go well you know Vince Vaughn basically finds a clue in the real world that helps him solve the complete crime in the real world so the whole thing with Jennifer, what's her name, going through Vincent D'Onofrio's dreams really doesn't matter at all. Like, they just solve it via good police work. So the rest of it's kind of, you know, like a Nine Inch Nails video. And I'm like, okay, it looks nice. 
I think, I mean, that's, yeah, I'll sort of jump ahead, but that's one of the things about Torsten's career is that there's this one kind of unbelievable, almost self-funded masterpiece in there, and everything else is kind of a visually interesting, slight disappointment, especially in the script department. Yeah, yeah, like his film after this, Immortals, it's like, oh, yeah, that's, it's not good. Yeah. And then the one he did with Disney, and then... <laughs> and then there was the, the the recent, the very recent one, which isn't very good at all, which is the science fiction film, um, Selfless. Yeah, that was that was not great either. I mean, I love Free Jack, but I didn't need a remake of Free Jack. Remake of Free Jack. Yeah. Wow. Most people don't love Free Jack, but hey, <laughs> you're talking to the one guy who does. Trust me. Is that Jeff Murphy? Uh, yes, it is. Okay, well, it has to have something good about it then. So I just want to come back for a second to what you were saying, though, about the the poster being inspired by the Dali painting. Um, it sort of triggered something in my memory. I went and spoke to my wife, who, when she did her degree in fine art many years ago, went on a tour of Europe, an art tour that was arranged by her university, and she says that she ended up at Dali's house in Spain. And she said that... The way how the house was arranged, you didn't notice it while you were downstairs, but when you climbed up the stairs and looked over the banister, you saw the furniture had been arranged in such a way that it was Mae West's face. So when I showed her this picture, she said, oh, yeah, that's Mae West's uh, – the that's Salvador Dali's house. Um, so I, I was curious to see, oh, well, this is a painting as well. But, but yeah, I found it really fascinating that he'd gone and arranged the furniture to look like that. Wow. Yeah, I mean, he pretty much designed that couch that we see. Uh, you know, it's really in quite a few things, um, and I'll see it in the wild, the couch that looks like a pair of women's lips, and that is Mae West's lips. Everything about this movie just works for me. Even from the opening credits, the opening credits to this movie are probably some of the most beautiful opening credits I've ever seen. The way that it tells a story in just the first few minutes that it is this lush black and white photography, one of two times that we're going to get black and white photography in this movie, that we see a lot of the characters that are going to be in the rest of the movie worked into this area, especially uh, the stuntman with one leg, and that we get this whole idea of this arrow in the in the ankle kind of thing here in this area, and then we'll get that a few more times through the rest of the film, that we have the use of Beethoven's seventh in here, it's magnificent to see this, and so much of this is shot in slow-mo, which could be super pretentious, but my God, does it work. It's truly beautiful. There was something that I was thinking about in terms of how that uh, opening sequence works with the – or rather contrasts with the story in the rest of the film. What we're seeing there is a story being told to us about Roy by Tarsen Singh. And if we accept that version of events, that story there is real. That's black and white. That's unchangeable. The story that we'll get to shortly that Roy tells to Alexandria is fictitious and it's changeable. So the, the world of color, the world of imagination. I mean, ob the obvious example was The Wizard of Oz, I guess. I don't know whether he was thinking about that along the way, or rather the writer of Yo-Ho-Ho was thinking about that, although, mind you, they didn't do anything in black and white, so forget that. Uh, but 
certainly it, it speaks to me. And there's also another contrast that I'll come to shortly about truth versus fiction, but certainly that opening sequence in black and white, I feel that was a deliberate move to contrast reality with the fantasy and the gorgeous colors that we get in the tale of the five bandits. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I would say the Wizard of Oz was clearly a touchstone here. We can't be absolutely certain, but I think if you're, you're dealing with a film that's somehow trying to contrast the kind of the mundane nature of reality with this fascinating, colorful fantasy world, it almost can't not be uh, a touchstone. But also just uh, one of the things that kind of, even if they aren't great films, one of the things that kind of unites all of Thompson's movies um, or most of his films is, is a real love of storytelling. There's often someone telling a story. There's often there's quite a lot of voiceover in his movies. But I think again, that's something that that, that comes from Wizard of Oz. That, that kind of that, in, even though it's a bit more meandering in the fall, but that kind of quest narrative, you know, that that sort of search. I think I think the Wizard of Oz is definitely there. The one thing I thought was really interesting about the credits is I, I'm I, sorry, the opening credits. Is I'm, I'm a sort of terrible junkie for finding out which versions of classical recordings are being used and licensed in movies, and. Um, I wasn't sure who was conducting the uh, second movement of Beethoven's Seventh, the Allegretto. And so I waited and watched the credits. And it's actually a guy called Dejan, Dejan Pavlov from the Bulgarian Symphony Orchestra. And I was wondering if that was, again, a kind of nod back to Yo-Ho-Ho and its Bulgarian origins. Um, it might not be because the Bulgarian Symphony Orchestra are very, very popular for doing oh, – because they're quite cheap. Um, so they, you know, they pop, they pop up on everything from like Richard Clayderman albums to Beyonce records to you know half the movies you see. But it was just kind of a nice quirky touch. I thought the the slightly slow recording of the Allegretto, it's a little more andante perhaps, uh, was actually done by a Bulgarian orchestra. I want to say that in the audio commentary, though, there's two audio commentaries on the DVD, which I don't think made it to the Blu-ray, but I could be wrong. But in there's one that is just Tarsum speaking, and then there's one with uh, Lee Pace, Dan Gilroy, and Nico, whose last name I'm not going to try to pronounce, the producer and also co-writer. And they, one of them says that in the orchestra was one of the sons of one of the people that was involved in Yo-Ho-Ho. So it was this kind of full circle coming back to it. But yeah, I think they were very aware of the irony of using this Bulgarian orchestra to score the beginning of the fall, which is I like in that the first time I saw this movie, I was like, oh my God, this is so original and so great. And, you know, like, yeah, I was thinking a little bit of Wizard of Oz, especially working in the other characters. Like you'll see the Indian in the fields and you'll see the orderly is the, is the Charles Darwin character, yada, yada, yada. But, uh, but I was like, like, oh my God, this is so fantastic. I had no idea that it was a remake and it took me so long to be able to track down Yo Ho Ho because it is not really available and it's definitely not available with English subtitles, which is kind of a shame because I'd like to be able to contrast these films a little bit more and actually know what's going on in Yo Ho Ho. Unfortunately, I can promise you it's not available with English subtitles because last week I was in Sofia and I looked for it <laughs> and no, nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Yeah, it's 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 a shame because it? It, it would be. Very, I would just like to know what they're talking about, <laughs> and contrast the, the the scripts of the two films and the, and the voiceover and the way he tells the story. But you can see visually enough. You can see this. It's it's a loose remake. I wanted to um, talk 
very pretentiously for a couple of minutes about that Allegretto movement of Beethoven's Symphony Number no. Seven. Uh, it, I was really wanting to think whether there was a link between that movement and the film itself. Uh, like a few years ago, I was listening to a program on uh, the ABC here, hosted by a lovely fellow called Graham Abbott. And Graham, hello, if you're listening, thank you so much. I sent him an email and asked him to send me either a copy of the audio or the script to a show that he'd done where he spoke uh, in a very accessible way for non-classical musicians about the structure of that movement in particular. And that was the theme of his show, Keys to Music. And he was very kind enough to send it to me. So what his script explained was that we have this um, this main theme that we're all familiar with that goes for 12 bars. And the first run through, we get the cellos and the viola playing that main theme. And then the second run through, uh, we get the the second violins section of the orchestra taking up the main theme while the cellos and viola take up a counter melody. Uh, the third go around, we get the first violins playing the, the, that same melody while the second violins take up the counter melody. And then finally, we get uh, the wind and horn sections playing that melody while the first violinists now take up the counter melody. Um, so pretentiously in my mind, I sort of thought, okay, well, we're getting each section telling a story and then another section of the orchestra takes it up. By the time we get to the end of the movement, we're getting in the same set of 12 bars, the flutes telling the first couple of bars of the melody and the horns telling another part of the melody and the bass, what sounds to me like the bass, taking up the final part of that main melody. So what started is each instrument section telling the story and then someone else, another section repeating it. By the end, they're all telling different sections of the story. And that, to me, sort of reflected what was happening with Roy and Alexandria. I mean, I know we're getting quite far ahead in the film, but as we'll discuss, uh, Alex says it, this is her story as well. And she starts where she doesn't like Roy's version of events in the story. She decides, no, I'm going to change things. This is my story too. They're sharing the story between each other, just like it's the same story in, in the seventh symphony in the Allegretto movement. They're all sharing parts of the same story. It's so the sharing parts of the same melody and that just, I thought, right. Okay. That works for me. I'm going to talk about that. So thank you, Graham Abbott, if you're listening. This opening, uh, we should probably say what's actually happening in here. It is, uh, we are witnessing the aftermath of an accident. And so this is setting us up to show what is happening to our main character or one of two main characters, which is this character Roy played by Lee Pace. And I want to say this was a really early role by Lee Pace. Most people will know him these days as being, well, Maybe not most people. Some people will remember the very delightful show Pushing Daisies, which was unceremoniously canceled a few years ago. And strangely enough, they will know him as being Ronan in Guardians of the Galaxy, where he does not look like him at all. You would be hard-pressed to say, oh yeah, that's Lee Pace behind all that makeup, but... All right. And then he was also one of the big deal elves in uh, those uh, less than spectacular Hobbit movies. But yeah, he uh, he's a 
great actor and I think he's terrific in this. And I love the stories of behind the scenes where he showed up every day in a wheelchair and a lot of people on the crew had no idea that he could walk. And I don't think Katinka knew that he could walk until much later into the process. And I think there's even a scene in the behind the scenes where he reveals that he can walk. I have to agree. He's extraordinary in this. I mean, he's, he's extremely charismatic. He's got incredible chemistry with a child actor, which isn't always, isn't common and isn't always easy. And yeah, he should, I mean, on the back, if pe- more people had seen this film, he would have been a bigger star. Cause um, I was, while you guys were talking, I, you know, I was just thinking back to my first viewing of the film and I started realizing the dates in my head didn't chime. And the film comes out in 2006, but I, realize i can't have seen it in 2006 i saw it probably more likely it was 2008 because the film took two years to find distribution in the uk yeah it's a film that you know it took a long time for people to to see it and not many people have seen it i think that's the thing you know there's the term cult movie is used far too easily far too readily this really is one i think um and it's a shame that the film didn't do as well as it, it should have because I think Lee Pace would be, you know, an even bigger star. Well, he's becoming one now, perhaps, but you know, it'd be a bigger deal because he's very, very good. I have no recollection at all whether this had an Australian cinema release. I think I might have seen the DVD case at my old DVD library back in the day, but I have absolutely no recollection if it had even like an art house cinema release here, which, as you say. Uh, Brian is a you know a huge shame because this is a sort of film that, given a little bit of exposure, would have surely found an audience. I've shown the film at uh, my film society at the, at the university here, and I've I've shown it a couple times actually. I've never shown it to an audience that didn't love it. It's just one of those films, but it just it fell through the cracks. I mean, I'm not sure if it got an Australian release either. To be honest, it's it seems to have been released very slowly in dribs and drabs over the course of three or four years from its, you know, American premiere. So purely on its look, we had quite a few of the films of Peter Greenaway down here, which are well beloved. You know, the the cook, the thief, the wife and her lover, which also you know, the thing it has in common with this, I guess it may be the only thing is the colour palette that it uses and how colour is a strong representation. But the look of that feel and the pace of those films, I thought if Peter Greenaway could be uh, an art house success over here, then surely this film really could have. No offense to Peter Greenaway. I mean, again, Derek Jarman and Peter Greenaway are kind of the sort of the twin jets of my research. He's less fun than The Fall. <laughs> um, you know, it's a strange film. Cause, I mean, The Fall's an interesting one because I agree with you. I mean, it could have been an art house success, but actually, the, I think the other thing it has in common with The, the Thief is some pretty sudden and extreme outbursts and one of the things about the fall that i've always found really interesting is it, it, it on the one hand it smacks of a, a fantastic lack of compromise on the other hand it smacks of just artistic suicide is that it, it is actually rated r just for its violence mm. and there are there are scenes in the film that look like all of a sudden tarsum's handed over the reins to sam peckinpah when they shoot um oh the one wonderful actor um who plays Darwin when he gets shot? I mean, there's just sort of spurts of blood and slow motion pouring out of him. And, and there's quite a lot of, you know, really sort of graphic stuff in it. And if it hadn't been for that, this is the kind of film that people might have been able to take their, you know, their kids to see. It could have actually been a Leo Bills, the actor could have been a, you know, a family movie in a way, but Tarson decided to go down a, a very different road. 
using IMDb, which is the source of all knowledge of all films and is always 100% correct, this played in the Toronto Film Festival September 2006. So that's when I saw it. And then it played the Los Angeles Festival uh, June 2007. It's just playing festivals after that. And then it comes out in the U.S. officially, probably limited release, May 30th, 2008. So, yeah. And then it's like drips and drabs again coming out here and there, like Belgium in 2009, March, uh, coming out on DVD in Sweden, Mar- May 2009. So, yeah, this is... And yeah, I don't see an Australian release date whatsoever. Um, you know, it comes out in Canada two years after the premiere on DVD, almost two years to the day it comes out on DVD. And that's it. So it is, yeah, this poor movie. And I mean, I, I don't remember that opening title. I mean, granted, this is 2006 when I'm seeing it. I don't remember that opening Spike Lee and David Fincher present like, or sorry, Spike Jones and David Fincher present. I don't remember that at all. I don't remember that at all. And I'm glad that they're supporting fellow artists and stuff, but you know, it just didn't have the legs to it. It could possibly be part of uh, part and parcel of the fact that the film was essentially independently funded and made. And of course, one of the largest things that happens with studio, the largest part of the budgets of studio films these days is the advertising budget. So this is a film that was probably, as you say, given a it wasn't adver- gorgeous poster though it is wasn't properly advertised i certainly have never seen an ad for it in a, a tube station in london or on the side of a bus you know it, it it just it probably just didn't get pushed the way that a studio film that looked this good would have been pushed i imagine it would have broken tarsim singh's heart the the way how roy's heart gets broken in uh, in the film so it's it's a wonder. I mean, regardless of whatever it is that his other films are like, and I haven't seen any of them, but regardless of that, um, it's a wonder that he kept working. He didn't he didn't just give it all up because this was his passion project. I mean, he talked about this for years and made it over a series of years. And we're going to hear from Jed Clark in a little bit, who is the production designer, and to hear the way that Tarsum would use the commercial shoots that he was on as either scouting for places or for actual shooting. And that, I mean, there's that montage in this movie, and I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit, and we'll actually start to talk about the story, but there's a montage where they are looking for this Governor Odious character, and our main characters are going Paris, the Great Wall of China, you know, just uh, this whole, like, picture postcard thing. And these are real locations that they're shooting at. They're not the real actors. They're, like, five or four or five stand-ins that they have going across there. But these are real places. And he is shooting this thing all around the world. You watch the end credits for this thing. It's like India location, you know, uh, Nairobi, uh, all these locations all the way around the world. It is just amazing to see the effort that it took to shoot this and that Tarsum could, he, they were talking on the, uh, the audio commentaries where it's like, Oh yeah, we shot this in a day. And it's like, really, this whole sequence took you guys a day to shoot. That's amazing. 
But I think it's that Tarsum's a commercial director coming from that world and knows, you know, in that world, especially time is money. So let's get going. And he has the whole thing in his head. So we're just going to shoot this bitch and get it over with. And it is just amazing to think like, oh, yeah, that sequence with the wild man killing all of these, all of these uh, guards and stuff and, and being on top of their body. Oh, yeah, that took us an afternoon to shoot. It's like, wow, really? And yes, there's special effects. There is CGI in this movie, but it's not excessive. And there's so many parts where you're watching it thinking that's got to be an effect. And then you hear the commentary and you're like, no, that's a real place. We are not doing that much effects work in this movie. If ever there was a film you need to look at the end credits for, it's this one, because it's, it's, it's got that kind of Werner Herzog thing about it, where they're actually making you believe your eyes again, because you, you think everything's a special effect now, and in this film, as you say, so few things are, and at the end, when you, when you look at the locations, I lost count at 25. I think there is something along the lines of 29 different countries and locations being used. But then when you get to the special effects credits, which you're used to, I mean, think of the Hobbit movies, going on for three to four days the longest list of names ever it's it's probably about 25 names there's a few 2d artists there's only a couple of 3d artists mentioned the cg work in this film is very very negligible and that i think it again adds to the film's power you know that they're creating these images in camera not in post the only thing that i read might have been cg was um the moment with the map appearing on the mystic's chest was there something else? I don't know, but everything else looks like, oh, yeah, surely they did that with a green screen, but no, absolutely amazing. So I'm, I'm wondering where else was CGI if all these locations were real. The only shot that ever like cries out to me and says, this is CG, and it's such a dumb shot for me to, to focus in on, is when Otobenga has all those arrows in his back and he leans back onto them. That just looks really kind of fakey, and I was like, oh, I wish you could have found a way to do that practical, but whatever. I'm not going to quibble about that. I don't even have a problem with that because, once again, we're getting this story through Alexandria's eyes, and if that's what she sees, then maybe there were some other moments in the film that it would have been better to have as more childish if that's a criticism or anything like that. But I just saw that as, oh, yeah, that's how she sees it in her head. So there's nothing visual there that I would take issue with. This movie is almost a love letter to the entire Earth. You know, looking at all of these locations and just seeing, like, my goodness, what have we built in the world and what exists in the wild? And just looking at these scenes and going, wow, if this is a real place, this is amazing. And to know that they are real places, like the, the, the one area where all of the buildings are painted blue and it's just like, oh my God, that is just spectacular. And some of these shots that they get, I mean, there's, there's a, a shot early on because, so we've got the opening credits and that's telling us one part of a story, one version of a story. And then we have the meeting of Roy and Alexandria, and there's also this uh, sister who works at the hospital, um, Evelyn. And then we get kind of a pre-story where it is Lee telling this story. Sorry, it's Roy telling the story of Alexander the Great. And that's where we first get introduced. It's a very nice way of doing it, where we get introduced to this idea of who's in control of the story, because he... He starts to tell it, 
And then there's a whole thing about like, oh no, he, uh, Alexander the Great doesn't have a horse. So then he's without a horse. And then the way that things are changing around it, there, there's some special, special effects there as far as like the way that the camera will come around and it's a whole different area. But it's a nice kind of like precursor to what we're going to get with the rest of the movie, I should say, because they pretty soon they drop the Alexander the Great character and then go into the story proper, which then, as you were saying, kind of morphs and changes based upon their moods, uh, their needs, what's happening in the world outside of them. And I love that they balance that story of the mass bandit with the story of the hospital in such a nice way and the way that they'll come in and out of that, I think it's the perfect amount. Um, we'll never get too much of one and not enough of the other. The main gist of the film though is the story in the hospital. It's, I wouldn't say that the story that he's telling and she's doing her own modifications to is a minor part. It's, it's obviously not, but the emotional heart for me, is the uh, the enveloping story, the one, the story in the real world, if you will. Her distress, her trying to make things right for Roy by stealing medication for him, what she observes with Nurse Evelyn, uh, potentially having an affair with the doctor, where she wants her to get together with Roy. That's the emotional heart of the film. Once again, you're sort of wondering whether it's it's truth versus fiction. I mean, they create that uh, they take that truth and put it into fiction. Is that because she finds she finds inspiration from that? That's what she finds more interesting. Yeah, is it easier for her to deal with things? I mean, especially things like loss. The way that she'll talk about, um, you know, she mentions that their house was burned down by angry people. It's on her father is dead. We don't know exactly how he dies, but it seems like we see how he dies. So it's very interesting to get that. And then it's, it's, I mean, especially coming from, you know, Tarsum Singh, uh, having this whole story of immigrants in the way that the immigrants are being, um, bullied and killed possibly. I mean, it really rings true in these times, but it's just amazing to think of like, you know, oh yeah, these, I guess they were Romanian or Bulgarian immigrants coming in and the way that they're working and picking the fruit. And then poor Alexandria, that's how she ends up getting a broken arm and being in the hospitals by falling out of a tree, picking fruit. Yeah. It has that that kind of um, grapes wrath quality about it. You know, her, her story does, but what's also interesting, I mean, in terms of that, that immigrant experience is that her mental picture of an Indian is quite, the opposite of what is it? So he's he's really describing uh, a Native American, but in her mind, because of her experience picking in the orchard, she actually sees the the Indian character from India, whose name will come to me in a minute. Um, it's played by G two Verma. I'm just trying to think of the character, name. but so it, she's seeing someone, you know, uh, essentially a Sikh warrior rather than um, you know an Apache or a Comanche warrior. And that's just a wonderful way of showing how different their experiences but also how the imagination sees things so differently that that sort of subjectivity that the film brings in very early but i mean i agree with morris i think the film 
you know, unlike The Wizard of Oz, where it's really just once you've got, got out of the frame narrative, you're in Oz, and then you come back out of it at the end. The fact that we keep returning to the story, we keep returning to the hospital where he's telling the story to her, it really is the emotional heart of the film. And the film would not be half as good as it was if A, Lee Pace wasn't so good, but B, the child actor is just extraordinary. She's absolutely amazing, yeah. Could she be any more cute? My God. When she goes, a little, it's just like, oh my God. Look, I've, I've got to say, I fell in love with her because she looked so similar to my great niece when she was at that age. And I thought, oh, I'm looking at Rachel. Oh, my goodness. Ridiculously cute. And the, the gap tooth thing that comes in is great. But it's just, yeah. And, and I, I read somewhere, I thought it must, might have been in the commentary, that they shot it all in sequence so that she could essentially, you know, grow into the role. And, and, and her English actually does get a little bit better. And then when she shows up as the bandit later on, you can see she's got her teeth back. And they even make a mention, he goes, uh, oh, your teeth are back in, you must have your strength, because there's this whole thing about teeth being the strength of a person, the whole idea of the old man, because he's got two people in the hospital room with him, one very unpleasant guy, and this older uh, gentleman who's got false teeth. And uh, the the guy with the false teeth is a, very much a, a protector, which is a, a good role. And that he can take his teeth out, and uh, and Roy's like, oh, that's where he keeps his strength. That's where he keeps his soul. There's this real religious uh, theme that runs through here, which I think they kind of toned down a little bit because um, there is one deleted scene which I wish they would have kept in, where we get to see the priest character one other time, where when Lady Evelyn comes out of that carriage and there's her i think it's her nephew is there behind her comes or behind the nephew comes the priest and he goes to whack the kid with a stick and you hear alexandria say no no he's nice he's nice and then he changes the the direction of the stick right then when he's uh, about to hit this kid with it and there's also there's crosses that go throughout this entire thing i like that um Evelyn in the real world is Sister Evelyn, but then Katinki or Alexandria doesn't know what a sister is, and she goes, "No, she has no brothers or sisters." Yeah, I noticed early on. I think it might have been like the first or second time that she goes to search out Roy. The the way how the shot is framed, uh, we see she stops, and there's a cross above her head in in the shot, and that goes along, I guess, with the religious theme. She at one stage. Uh, Roy asks her, are you my savior? That's right. When she comes to bring him the Eucharist and he says, oh, are you my savior? And she says, what? Are you my savior? What? <laughs> I believe there was a lot of uh, improvisation going along there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we can hear that at the, the end credits when she's just talking over the mo- fantastic montage of silent film stunts. And she's hmm. so, sort of narrating it, sort of not narrating it. And at the end, I, th- I think you hear someone laugh at her. I'm pretty sure that's Tarsum Singh. And then she just sort of then says, you know, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I mean, <laughs> I think a lot of it, a lot of it is her just winging it. And that's, and, and obviously Lee Pace must have been very good at winging it with her. Um, Cause it never comes across like they're making this, Part of my French making the shit up as they go along, but to a degree, I think they were. Um, you know, the, the, when you're when you're dealing with a child, she was six at the time. I think she's going to have whims. She's going to be difficult to direct and keep on book. So they just let it flow, and that's what gives the film this this really rare 
childish charm, um, which I think is again very key to its its success and its its ability to win over audiences that do eventually get to see it. Is it, it's it's you know you're, you're often told that you're seeing a film from a child's point of view. This one really kind of is, and yes, it's from Lee Paces as well. But you're really in her head as much as his, especially in the final half when she shows up in the story within you know the story within the story. Yeah, and so much of this is her being an observer, and she is not necessarily his eyes, but she's her own eyes going around the hospital and seeing all of these different things, being able to witness the man taking his teeth out, being able to witness uh, Nurse Evelyn with the doctor, being able to see the child who uh, is dying, uh, the one who fell into the snake pit and is bit by vipers, and you see that child with uh, the child's mother, and that that's, our, I think, our first instance of her being so upset that she wets her pants. And then the old man coming up and saying, don't worry, it happens to me all the time. And then he gives her that protection against evil chant, the googly, 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 go away chant. Then that comes back in the story as well, which I appreciate, too. That whole thing of uh, uh, her wetting herself, that comes back a, a couple more times because when uh, Roy goes kind of nuts when he finds out that his suicide attempt was thwarted because they were giving someone, uh, the, the very unpleasant person that's in his room. He's such a hypochondriac that they've been giving him sugar pills. So he ODs quote unquote on sugar pills. <laughs> Roy does. Uh, and when he finds that out, he goes nuts and, and is screaming, carrying on. And they're like, Oh, sh- you know, we need to take her away. She wet herself again. So it's like, Oh, that, that's, you know, such a horrible thing that she is so scared that she pees herself. And I just feel for her so much. She just makes my heart swell every time I see her. It's interesting you mentioned the Googly. I don't know if Morris wants to come in on this, but obviously Googly is the name of the production company that Torsten yes. has. But uh, Googly also for, for keen cricketers is an interesting <laughs> thing. Um, you know, if, if you've seen John Borman's Hope and Glory, the, the Googly is one of the, the key sort of metaphors coming of age in that film. A Googly in cricket is a very difficult thing to do, but it's, it's a spin bowler's kind of, um, ace in the hole really it, it looks like one kind of ball it looks basically like it's going to be a, a leg spin so it's going to bounce and move away from the the, the batsman but at, properly disguised it looks like one thing and then it actually moves towards the bowler's legs so it's it's kind of a, a rope-a-dope almost you know you're you're, you're you're deflecting something and i think again the film's like that you always think it's going to go one way and then it just veers off in a different direction. That kind of unpredictability that is really, I think, um, exemplified by that word "googly." And I'm sure that Sting, as a you know, as an Indian and as a cricket fan, was loving the fact that he was dropping you know little cricketing metaphors <laughs> into this film. And that might explain why the film bombed at the box office. Because I have a theory that no film that ever used cricketing metaphors has ever done well in America. <laughs> boo, boo. <laughs> I'm so, but I have to say, I am so proud to be on this fine podcast and bringing cricketing metaphors to to the to the American audience. I'm so glad you guys are here because I had no idea obviously, you know, Americans have a huge knowledge gap when it comes to gun control and cricketing metaphors. <laughs> now, I know this is sort of going aside for a second, but Brian, have you seen a, a film called Lagan? Oh, yes, absolutely. The the Bollywood film about the alleged first England Indy cricket match. Correct. That uh, uh, An absolutely amazing film. And I, I, I look, it, I'll confess it's the only Bollywood film that I've seen, but we need more 
cricketing films out there and maybe we can convince Mike to do that on a future show. I would very happily do an all cricket. Um, How I Won the War by Richard Lester, Lagan, yeah, be great. Um, there aren't enough cricket for critting films. I agree with that. It's true. Now we did talk about the shout a while ago. Um, which, That's a very good cricket film. Yes, it is. Uh, we talked about that on the Bone episode. List my list of shame. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, what a wonderful digression. Sorry. <laughs> which, by the way. Very- Anyone's seen the full digressions for the old part and parcel of this movie, so there's some wonderful oh, like, Yeah, absolutely. Like like the Alexander the Great bit you were talking about before, Mike. I mean, this is a film that's willing to to kind of, you know, even though in, in a way it follows the logic of something like Wizard of Oz, it has that kind of quest narrative. It also has that that very interesting, almost metacinematic interest in storytelling where it's happy just to veer off on a tangent and take you with it um, and not resolve certain things. And, and you know, ha- you think it's going in one direction. Like when she says, I don't like pirate stories. And then he has to completely rethink his entire tale. Is okay, it's a bandit story. And of course, um, Yo-Ho-Ho, the, the Bulgarian film, is very much a pirate story. And that's kind of a way, of maybe, again, sort of better said that's that's Tarsum and his writers are saying, okay, yes, this is based on the film called Yo-Ho-Ho. Um, that was a pirate story. We're borrowing the shell, but we're not telling a pirate story. We're doing something quite different. And I mean, I hope that that was their intention, but if it really was just the actress saying, I don't like pirate stories, and they rethought the whole movie on her whim, even better. <laughs> yeah, and I like how he's like, oh yeah, the, the mass bandit, he couldn't even swim. It's great, too, that there's two actors that played the masked bandit. That at first it is the actor that is playing her father because we see her father in a photograph. And then later on, she's like, no, 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 he's like you. And then suddenly the actor changes and it becomes Lee Pace as the mass bandit. Because if you look, especially the guy has a gap between his teeth, he talks differently. And then, yeah, as soon as she's like, no, no, my father's dead. He talks like you. And then, bam, he changes into the mass bandit. So as the first time I saw it, I thought that was Lee Pace again. <laughs> I thought that was him, yeah, him playing the father as well. But yeah, it took me a little while to to figure that one out, and then now thanks to looking at the credits a little bit more closely, I was like, oh, okay, I guess that is him. So actually, is the second actor there? Yeah, it's. I love these supporting players, these uh, other people that are on the quest with him. The way that the one-legged stuntman becomes Luigi, the explosive expert. That coat and hat, oh my god, I love that coat. It's this brilliant kind of like yellowish-orange coat with these red flames that are going up the back that end in the red cap, which almost looks like a flame on top of his head. Just brilliant stuff. It's it's kind of time to mention Aiko Ishioka. I mean, one of the, the great designers of the second half of the 20th century, the first part of this century. I mean, absolute genius. Uh, she did far too few films, but she did quite a few with Thompson, including um, The Cell as well. But um, obviously, you know, she's, she's known for other things like doing Paul Schrader's Mishima. Um, amazing set and costume designer. She, she, she kind of first came to prom. She was a poster designer in Japan, and she did the Japanese posters for Apocalypse Now. Oh, wow. And Coppola loved them. And showed them to Paul Schrader, and Schrader just sight unseen, basically, well, you know, having never met her, just invited her to do Mishima. And she'd never done sets or costumes on a film. And I mean, if, if you know Mishima, again, one of my favorite films, mind blowing. And Torsum obviously was a fan, and he, he brought her in for the cell and then for this one. And I think she's also on um, the, the one he made with Julia Roberts for Disney. Okay, Mirror Mirror, I think. 
Mirror Mirror, thank you. Yeah, so um, incre- I mean, just all the costumes are gorgeous. Um, the colours, you know. Uh, but she has a real a real flair. I mean, the other film that you would probably recognise herself, she did Bram Stoker's Dracula for Coppola. And if you look at the style of like Gary Oldman's suits of armor when he's kind of Vlad the Impaler, look at that, and then look at the the kind of, for want of a better word, the evil stormtroopers of Governor Odious. There's a there's a clear similarity. I mean, it's absolutely breathtaking. Um, so yeah, I mean, he has he has a great cast with him, but he has a great crew behind him as well. You know, you know, all kind of playing at the top of their game. But my favorite coat is Leo Bills, the guy playing Darwin. Oh yeah, what is going on with that pattern on that fur coat? That is amazing. <laughs> he looks like Mothra from the the Japanese films. I mean, it's just kind of this interesting like almost like eyes on him like it's like a natural protection and i guess butterflies would make sense because he's after that one butterfly and butterflies played such an important role when it comes to darwin's research and i like that there's a little jibe at darwin by having his monkey named wallace and that at one point he says like i took all your stories or i took all your theories and or or, like i'll give you equal credit because apparently it was one of those things where wallace was doing the same research or same theory of evolution that darwin was and then there's controversy as far as who did it first did darwin steal wallace's ideas and so it's this nice like historical jibe at darwin in here it's a nice little giant, but it's also it's a really nice little thing about the whole kind of okay, well, you know, you might have had the original story, but I'm not. It's it's the kind of remake, you know, yo ho ho versus the fall kind of element as well. You know, it's it's sort of saying we understand that there's a source behind this. In this case, it's a a strangely talking monkey. Um, but I, the other I absolutely love that Leo Bill does because he's he's a wonderful, very underused actor. Um, is when he starts communicating in this completely bonkers sign language. And you think, how the hell does he know to do this? This sort of wild gesticulation sign language, and it's it's just one one of those fantastically childish things that the film throws in there and gets away with. Um, and I think few films could. But once again, while you're dealing with a child's imagination, you can probably get away with a ton of things. If she said at some stage, and then the Earth opened up and they ended on the other side of the planet. Okay, we'd go, we'd go along with it as long as it, as long as it looked beautiful and it seemed intelligent in that universe. I mean, this is something that I've spoken about, uh, with friends before and on the See Here podcast, people who say they don't like musicals because who opens up their mouth and sings a song? And I say, well, no, the film establishes its set of rules and it lives to those rules. And that's what's happening in the fall. If something seems a little bit too fantastical to be true, it's not because these are the sets of rules that they've created and they've stuck with it and that makes sense and they don't sort of like go half-hearted at any point. They stick with the rules that they've gone and created. So, yeah, she could say anything and we'd go along with it. I just sort of wanted to come back to an earlier point that you made, I think, Mike, where you're talking about where Roy is telling her the story of uh, Alexander the Great and she says, oh, but he did not have a horse. And so he ends up, out of that green area and in the desert, and that's obviously something that's been done in post. But the, I, I watched this twice for the show, and the first time I watched it, I didn't even pick anything up. I didn't sort of work out, oh, how did they do that? It just worked so seamlessly, and the, the story is so seamless, and the visuals are so seamless. There's nothing clunky about it. And I just – it's only the second time that I watched it, I thought, 
oh, look what they've gone and done. And I didn't pick up on that the first time once again because it was just so natural. Yeah, because there's, there's two transitions almost like that that go from kind of desert to greenery. Because um, I think it's just before the scene you were talking about where they go through Paris and the Great Wall of China. I think just before that has another incredible what seems like one take transition between two completely different landscapes. Yeah, where they're lost and they find that green area. And I think the, uh, the mystic is leading them at that point, And then they find all those guys in the mud. That is wild when those bodies come out of the mud like that. Was anyone from Koyaniskatsi involved in this film? <laughs> it, it looks like someone could have been, mm. but... Um, Ron Freck, the cinematographer of Quanisquatsi, is too busy making his own films that are a bit like Quanisquatsi. But the quality of photography is of that level. Um, you know, it looks like that kind of pin sharp, heavily detailed seventy millimeter, you know, kind of film stop. But it isn't. I believe it's just shot on conventional thirty five. And wow, just very, very well. So we only have to wait maybe another six or seven years before you know if we keep uh, putting the word out and letting everyone know how wonderful this is, then this is going to get a 20th anniversary release on the cinema screen. That would be amazing. Mm. 4K the hell out of it, and and yeah. Because that's the thing, is that you really... I mean, seeing this on a big screen is just one of those incredible experiences. It's... um, it's kind of breathtaking, just you know, the, the scope and the imagery. I mean, if, if you look at, I mean, again on the poster, obviously you've got the, the Dali thing, but underneath that, yeah, the sort of a desert sort of vista. Um, it's the it's the chase scene essentially, where the the five of them chase down the the horse drawn carriage. Um, and you look at that and you think, well, this is Lawrence of Arabia. I mean, he's his visual touchstones for this film. He aims very high. And, you know, for the most part, does not fall flat. You know, I mean, if, you, if you're, you're going through quoting things like, you know, Lawrence of Arabia and, and there's, there's, you know, certain bits have a very kind of John Ford quality to them in, in the composition. But then other bits, as you say, are comparable to kind of Peter Greenaway. I mean, but there's a really, again, this is one of those scenes where you think, what were you thinking? But thank God you think this way, where the, um, the, the dead bodies are all strung up from the top of the church. Yeah, I mean, that's just an incredibly, you know, brutal, graphic, strange scene. And I, I, when I was watching that, it was kind of part of it. It reminded me of also the hanging meat in the cook, the thief, his wife, and her lover. But there was also something kind of almost silence of the lambs about it. It was, I mean, it was genuine kind of butchery. And you think this is a film that you could sell to children if you really wanted to. And you could tell the studio if a studio had been involved, they would have. They would have wanted a film that would have had a PG-13 audience and would have made more money and they would have made some compromises. But he's just, you know, he, he, some of the imagery could have actually been in the cell, which, as you know, is a film about a deranged serial killer. Uh, and it's just I, I kind of love that, that sort of refusal to compromise and that slight quirk of it. But it also it means it's a film that, you know, I keep hesitating before I buy a copy from my nephews who are kind of, you know, 10 and 13 thinking, are they ready? <laughs> They probably are. Kids can handle anything. Isn't that an interesting contrast, though, to uh, a film like Pan's Labyrinth, which is, once again, a mixture of fantasy and reality and all the brutality in that film? And it's once again, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but as I recollect, all the brutality in that film is in the real world and, and the main character has to escape to a fantasy world, whereas in this film, the brutality that we see is all in Alexandra's head. It's in the fantasy sequence. But I do want to talk about that, too, as far as Alexandria's imagination is better than anything that we can possibly see in the movies at that point. She says, like, I've never seen a movie. 
And then you see a movie later on and you see just how crude it is in whatever year that this is set in, uh, you know, just like it's an old, uh, uh, chase them up Western kind of a thing with a couple jokes in there. And then it's just like, Oh wow. You know, her imagination is this lush, vivid, beautiful place with these um, uh, incredible vistas, these wonderful transition shots between a butterfly and then a reef that's shaped like a butterfly, all of this wild stuff. And then you look at the movie and you just go, wow, okay, like this is very limiting. And I'm glad that she doesn't think in these terms. Well, I guess that's the thing is that if, you, if you've never seen a movie, you're not limited by your visual imagination of knowing what is actually capable, well, what a film is capable of visualizing. It's like, again, going back to, you know, sort of John Borman, he says every film in your head is, is kind of perfect and visionary and you can achieve everything. And then all of a sudden you, you start rolling the camera and they hand you a budget and you realize, right, compromise time. The film that she's kind of playing in her head, I think is, is incredibly uncompromised. It, it's a genuine kind of visionary experience. I, I don't like overusing that word, but it's visionary in the proper sense. It's dreamlike. It's fantastical. It's, it's excessive almost. It's yeah, I, I completely kind of agree with that. That you know, it's it's great that her imagination is not showing you some crappy two reeler western <laughs> that would have been possible in you know nineteen. You're right. It's like nine. Uh, you're kind of figuring D.W. Griffiths is just getting started here, kind of deal. Um, you know, so maybe nineteen between nineteen ten and nineteen fifteen when the film is probably set. And there's no mention of the war, so you know you have to assume it's kind of pre nineteen seventeen. But then, of course, afterwards in that final credit montage, you see you know Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin. You see what's gonna happen. But I mean, that's the thing. I think the thing, unlike Yo Ho Ho, which to me really is a film about trying to escape the mundanity of kind of communist bloc life in Bulgaria, because it's not set in the past, it's really set, well, in the f- set it's hard to tell sometimes, but it seems to be set in the, time, the early 80s, time in which the film was made it's, you know, it's set in a hospital that's very much a kind of communist concrete block architecture style, um, that seems to be really an escape from the sort of dour reality of daily life in, in you know a Warsaw packed country, whereas by setting this one in the past, they're kind of beginning of cinema the fall really becomes to me a love letter, a sort of hymn to movies. Um, and nothing says that better than that absolutely incredible, probably my favorite shot in the movie, the camera obscura oh, of the yeah. horse. Yes, that is so um, nice. Just damn, yeah. And it's, and it's you know, again, if you know if you know your stuff and your early sort of pre-cinema material, it's Edward Moybridge, but the fact that it's upside down takes even further back into a kind of pre-cinema history, you know, you start thinking of people like Vermeer, you know, the first painters who use camera obscuras, but just the idea that you're projecting this image through a keyhole onto a wall of a horse, and that, you know, from that point on, you realize this movie is just obsessed with movies. There's that, and then there's that shot, just a few shots later, where she's looking at her finger and closing one eye and then closing the other to really speak to the whole idea of the one lens versus the true bifocal uh, way that people see. It's such a nice little thing. It kind of reminds me of uh, uh, one of my favorite movies, John Pays' Crime Wave, where there's a section in there where he's talking about uh, the persistence of vision. And it's like there's a movie within the movie talking about how movies are made kind of thing, you know, just a, a couple shots here. And it's just like, oh, wow. And so it's just this, yeah, love letter to 
to to imagination and and visionary kind of stuff and yeah i love that camera obscura shot and i'd even forgotten that that was there and i was like oh wow that is wonderful and that horses play such a a big part in here too is kind of crazy like the whole idea of no alexander the, the great doesn't have a horse there's this whole thing of there's a horse in in the ward so i kind of think well maybe there's that and then there's that beautiful shot of the horse being pulled up at the beginning, that fake horse, thank God, being pulled up from the water at the beginning. And I just kept looking and seeing horses going through this whole thing. And I guess we're, we definitely are, speaking of time, we're in that transition between horses and cars and the, the red car that, um, the actor has, um, the actor who has stolen Roy's girl, allegedly, that is such a, well, it's a beautiful car and it is such an anomaly. And then we kind of get to see that again later on in the story. We have this red vehicle show up. So just coming back to that horse in the camera obscura moment for a second, this also sort of goes in alignment with what you said before, Brian, about subversion of expectations. So the first time I watched the film and I, I saw that image of the horse upside down and then she looked outside and saw the horse outside the hospital, I sort of got an impression of an early scene in uh, the Time Bandits, the Terry Gilliam film from the mid '80s, where the the child is lying in his bed at night, and he looks up, and before he realizes he's in that time portal, he sees a knight on a horse jump from one wall through to the other wall in his room, and I sort of thought, oh, is this going to be that sort of film where reality and fantasy? collide and it's only as we go on that or else oh it wasn't like that but I, I sort of think that Terry Gilliam was possibly some sort of inspiration on Tarsum Singh and I, I probably imagine though that uh, Terry Gilliam in return would have been a big fan of this film. Yeah I'm surprised his name wasn't there along with Fincher and Jones at the beginning. Uh, obviously uh, in America to a certain generation that wouldn't Terry Gilliam's name probably wouldn't carry the same weight that it would to you know, older people are diehard cineasts, but I, yeah, I could, I could see that this is the kind of thing that he would he would really really like. Um, just just on a visual level alone, you know, that, that ability to just create these unforgettable images as much as possible without resorting to special effects would be something that uh, Gilliam would greatly admire. And we're talking about perception and interpretation, and you already mentioned the Indian character, um, and that I absolutely love that. That was kind of funny because my wife was watching this movie with me, but she walked in after it had started, and so she's hearing Lee Pace, the Roy character, talk about you know the Indian and his squaw and his wigwam and just using all of these terms, and she sees this india indian on screen and she's like what is going on well he's talking about a different kind of indian why is why are we seeing this guy on screen and then i had to explain it well it's actually we're seeing this through alexandria's eyes this is the what's in her imagination despite what the voiceover is saying so really she's got the control and she's the one who is interpreting these things so it's kind of a nice thing too as far as narratively that so much of this is controlled by Alexandria and that she can fight back at times. There are times where Roy really takes that narrative, especially when he starts to just murder everyone towards the end of the story. 
and she's out of control at that moment, but she still sees all the things in her head that are going on. That is probably the most heart-wrenching moment of this whole film, is just as he's taking these characters that we have grown to love and just murdering one after another after another in some of the most horrific ways. <laughs> yes. Well, again, the film becomes a, a temporary peck and pot bloodbath, really, doesn't it? As you say, I mean, that strange shot where... Um, I can't remember the, the character's name, but where he basically gets turned into a Kurosawa-esque human pincushion of ar- arrows. I mean, that, that's brutal. And actually, in a way, for me, the, 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 the most moving of the deaths is actually the Indian who, who sacrifices himself, cutting, you know, cutting the rope to, to allow Lee Pace to, to climb to the top of the tower. It's, it's an incredible scene, especially when it, very briefly it cuts back to them in the hospital and she says, why are you doing this? And he, he just he brings crashing home that reality while everyone dies. Um, and you realize it's interesting because it's, it's, you know, I wouldn't call it a coming of age story, but it is a film about a child not necessarily starting to lose their innocence. But in a way, she's not completely innocent anyway, because um, she's lying to the doctor when she's translating for her mother. She's not entirely, I'm saying that she's not entirely not innocent, but she's she's canny in a way. She knows. And she's bright, she's resourceful. Um, you can tell this on her shoulders, but she's not complete. She's also innocent and not completely aware of the, the ways of the world. And I think by the end of the film, there is a kind of maturation. Um, you know, she understands that not everything is going to be happily ever after, and and that life, you know, comes with a certain element of pain. I think you're right that that sequence where, in about five minutes, he wipes out his cast of sidekicks it's just I mean the first time I watched it my jaw practically drops like he's killed all of them <laughs> even Wallace the monkey yeah and the monkey that's, kills the monkey that is one of the most heartbreaking moments because that poor yeah. monkey just looks like oh I, I've lived such a wonderful life and now it has to end talking about perception too it's interesting to listen to the two audio commentaries and when it comes to Oda Benga. So that's the, the former slave who's got the crazy, uh, horned hat. And apparently they wanted to cast, uh, Jim and Honsu as that role at first. And then they couldn't get him. Schedules didn't work out. Thank God Lee Pace wasn't a more popular actor because of the amount of time that he had to keep coming back and travel to this place and that place <laughs> because this movie took so long to shot, to shoot. If he had had a steady gig at this point, this movie never would have been able to, to happen. But with Oda Benga, like you listened to Tarsum talk about the character and then you listen to Nico talk about the character and he's based on th- that name, Oda Benga. It's a real name. It's a real person. And it was a pygmy who was taken from Africa and brought over to, I think, the United States, but had traveled to a couple other places. And you hear Tarsum tell the story and it's like, yeah, he knew that he uh, couldn't go back to Africa and uh, that his life there was over. So they put him in this in the zoo, basically. They put him in a zoo and he was happy there and things were good. But then eventually he killed himself. And then you hear Nico tell the story and it's just like, oh, this is so terrible. They put this guy in a zoo and he was so despondent that he killed himself. And in Tarsum's version, oh yeah, he was le- leading a pretty good life in this zoo, and the other guy's just like, this is horrible, you can't put a person in a zoo. <laughs> but like, I would highly recommend that people go to Wikipedia and look up the story of Otabenga, uh, O-T-A-B-E-N-G-A. It is really heartbreaking, and I'm surprised that there hasn't been like a biopic about this guy, or at least a 
and uh, uh, an issue of Murder Can Be Fun about this guy because it is just a crazy life. I guess he was uh, he was kept in the Bronx Zoo and he was exhibited at the St. Louis World Fair. And this is not ancient history. This is around the time that the fall was set. This, we're looking at like 1906 for when Otabenga was in the Bronx Zoo. I mean, I had a look at that Wikipedia page that you uh, linked us to, Mike, and I think at the bottom of the page it does say that he his story had been no, uh, had been referred to in all sorts of popular culture. So there are songs that referred to him, and I don't know if there are other films. I can't remember, but there's literature, there's stories, there's plays, there's songs. So uh, it looks like the fall isn't the first time that he's referred to in a in a film or at least in some level of popular culture. Yeah. I think there's even a reference to him in the curious case of Benjamin, Benjamin Button, speaking of David Fincher, crazy stuff. Cause you know, people will be like, Oh yeah, Charles Darwin, obviously that's a figure from history. And it's like, well, actually Otabenga is kind of a figure from history too, though. This guy yeah. is much taller than Otabenga was. Right. I, I dare say Luigi is not a figure from history though. No. Though <laughs> <laughs> so the whole idea of uh, a stunt man who loses his leg and then gets more work. Apparently, that was taken from some real stories. As far as like, yeah, he was an actor. He was doing some work. It was okay. Then this guy loses his leg, and then he gets employed like crazy for stunts because it's like, okay, somebody chopped off a leg. Oh, here you go. Somebody took an arrow to the leg. Okay, here you go. And just all of these things. It's like, like you look at, uh, I mean, even something like the thing where it's like, okay, we need to um, uh, employ someone who doesn't have any arms so that we can pull off this gag. And it's like, all right, cool. You were just talking about, um, you know, thank God Lee Pace wasn't more popular. I mean, I guess that's another interesting point about the film is that, and this may have obviously, of course, affected its its distribution potential. Um, there's no stars, and I think everyone's working for scale. It's, you know, you know that this is this is a film that exists entirely outside of our our kind of common notion of how a, a film of this size and ambition gets made. Usually you have to have a property, it's, you know, is it based on this best-selling novel? Does it have Tom Cruise in it? You know, is the director a big, had a big hit. This is a director who never had a hit because no one saw the cell really. And those that did were pretty lukewarm about it. Otherwise just on adverts and music videos. There are no stars in it. There's no, you know, it's based on an obscure Bulgarian film that's never been released with subtitles. It's there's no property to it. This this literally is a film that's being made for the sheer it's you know it's it's amateur in the best sense. It's being made for love rather than rather than for profit. And it's just it's kind of amazing the more I think about it that the film even exists but yeah as as you say you know that the actors had to put on you know you'd have to go to like mid-60s period kurosawa to kind of think of the demands that were put on an actor's time it's like saying to lee pace oh, i need you for two days in this country or i need you for two days here and and that the actors would be able to do that it's 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 incredible really and shows a commitment right i think from everyone involved um, so I know Leo Bill was doing theatre in London at the time, and he's he made one other film that year, which is a remarkable, very low budget film called *The Living in the Dead* by a criminally underrated British filmmaker called Simon Rumley. But um, I think *The Living in the Dead* was shot in eleven days, um, and you know, so in the middle of all of that, the, that's the only other film he makes. I think in two thousand and six, he's probably just popping around the world, making you know, shooting bits of *The Fall* and. Um, because Leo Bill's not really, a, again, he's not a named actor, but if anyone's a Mike Lee fan, you'll know the face. 
most recently he was in Peterloo as one of the journalists, but he's, um, I think he's Mike Lee's godson, but he's in a lot of Mike Lee films. And so you, you see his face popping up, but that's kind of the thing about the falls. You, you recognize an actor maybe based on other things you've seen them in, but you probably wouldn't know their name right away. You, you know, none of them have a massive career certainly when they make the film a massive career behind them that you can kind of draw on so and i think that in a way helps you get even more into the fantasy of it these characters these actors don't have a backstory they don't have tom cruise's baggage you just believe the story you're being told rather than thinking oh you know this is just another film it's it's interesting but that, that lack of stars i think is very key to the film's appeal but also was probably its achilles heel in terms of distributing it it also subverts expectations as far as, like, you would think, you know, more she brought up the whole idea of the Princess Bride, and it's like, okay, is this a kissing story? And there is a moment where uh, Alexandria is trying to prompt Roy to have um, his character and the Lady Evelyn character kiss, um, but she ends up betraying him, just as she ended up uh, – the, the uh, his – Roy's girlfriend in the outside world ended up betraying him. And so it's like, he just keeps injecting this betrayal in there. And then when he finds out lady, um, sister Evelyn is, uh, with the doctor, it's just like, okay, you know, but she really wasn't the object of his affection. Anyway, it was just like sticking that character in there kind of thing, you know, through Alexandria's mind. So there's that. And there's, you know, we talk about, uh, governor odious like crazy, but we don't really, even get to see him until right towards the end of the story. So he's just this figure that looms large over everything. And more than anything, we see those soldiers that you're talking about, which are modeled after that, uh, that crazy outfit that they used to have to wear when it came to uh, X-raying people. It was this lead line suit. And I love that those soldiers too, that they um, give them like hyena voices and growls rather than actual real voices. It is really disturbing. Yeah, first thing I thought when I saw that X-ray costume, I didn't realize that that's how uh, X-ray technicians went around, you know, back in that in that day. And I thought that that was part of the fantasy element right from the word go. I already mentioned Time Bandit's reference with the horse, but I thought that was another sort of thing uh, in relation to her fantasy. I thought, yep, looks like Ned Kelly. So. It does look like yeah, no, that Ned Kelly definitely comes to mind, right? But it's. Yeah, he looked like the the Black Knight from uh, the Holy Grail. Oh, oh, I see. Running away, eh? You yellow bastard! Come back here and take what's coming to you! I'll bite your legs off! It becomes a love story, but it becomes a love story between Roy and Alexandria. You know, and she loves him so much and wants to do right by him. She gets super upset when he yells at her, you know, talking about her being kind of a storyteller in, in a way, her uh, doing that toe test because he's trying to see if he has feelings back in his toes and he catches her in a lie. And hearing the stories about them having to shoot that and just how upset uh, Katinka got on set when Lee Pace was yelling at her uh, that they had to like wait and wait and wait until he actually had that outburst at her and called her a little liar because they knew that that was it. Like she had to go away for a couple of days and then come back. And it took a while to rebuild that trust between her and Lee Pace again. But that's another example of telling stories. You know, we got the big sort of issue of storytelling of him telling her this tale and her making modifications. But when someone tells a lie, we say, oh, you're telling stories, aren't you? And so there's that incident where, 
about the about the big toe, uh, and he loses his trust. And then there's also you mentioned before about the doctor asking, uh, "What did your mother just say?" She said, "Yes." Uh, Alex, are you telling me the truth? So we like to be told stories, but we don't like to be told stories, if that makes sense. Told tales, yeah, that, make, that, make, that makes a lot of sense. And it's, as I said, it's it's interesting that Tarsum's, you know, his whole career seems to be very rooted in this notion of storytelling. I said Immortals, which is a this very strange, not very successful film. But is that narrated by John Hurt? I think you might be right. It's been a while since I've seen it. Yeah, I wasn't rushing back to see it, but um, you know, it's the same. But that 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 idea of telling larger than life stories and telling them as stories, as fables, is is clearly um very important to him. But it's it's interesting because he's kind of going back to to sort of Peter Greenaway, you know, who once sort of semi-famously said that the cinema is far too rich and capable of medium to merely be left to storytellers. Um, and he he watched me like. <laughs> You know the fall, and you sit there and think, okay, I, I see Greenaway's point, but this is a film that that has all of all of those kind of metacinematic references, the art historical references, um, the weird kind of in jokes and puns and allusions that you'd get in a Greenaway film. Yet, just revels in telling a story, or you know, lots of little tangential stories. It's it's interesting in that respect. I mean, the film is it's. Um, it's not for someone who you know who likes their Robert Bresson. It's not for someone who likes a film that's stripped back to its essentials. I mean, this is a film that's if there's an opposite of minimalist, maximalist, this is it. You know, um, it's it's almost operatic, really, in how stuffed it is, full of you know ideas and visuals and and story fragments. And there's even an animated sequence in here that I always forget about. I was speaking to my son Max about um, that animated sequence. He hasn't watched the film, but I made him watch just that little sequence. He's doing a degree in animation at university. And I was saying to him, whose style does this animated sequence remind you of? And he mentioned these brothers called uh, the Quay Brothers, who I'd not I'd not heard of, but because I was sort of like just throwing out the name, I said, "Oh, is 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 this sequence sort of reminding you a little bit like you know Jan Svankma, who's one of his big heroes?" And he said, "Oh, look, maybe a little bit." And then I sort of was having a look on YouTube to see what else the Quay Brothers had done, and one of the films was um i called the cabinet of Jan oh the cabinet of dr svankmeyer and and um there's a moment in it which must have been a big impression made a big impression on uh, tarsum singh or whoever it was that was creating that animated sequence because we see in it uh, a doll's head cut open and it has all the stuffing being pulled out just like in this sequence where the animated doll of Alexandria is having the operation. It's it's um, paralleling her fears of doctors and that map or that note that she was originally throwing to Nurse Evelyn comes out of her head. So visually, I'm I'm convinced. Yeah, sure that uh, Max was absolutely spot on. Reforge a link there that the K brothers, um, Stephen and Timothy, Terry Gillian's a huge fan. And their first feature, Institute Benjamenta, was referred to by Gillian as the greatest film made in the last thousand years. 
And he, he produced, or executive produced, their second feature, The Piano Tuner of Earthquakes, which they weren't entirely happy with. But yes, if you if you like kind of mind-bending, extremely visual cinema, the K Brothers are just um, quite remarkable. They are, people say they're influenced by Spankmar. I think it's more that there's a kind of mutual admiration pact between between the three of them. Um, oh, and sorry, back to Peter Greenaway. If, if anyone knows Greenaway's film, The Falls, there's a, pair of twins in that and there's a photograph of the twins and that is Stephen and Timothy Kay and when he was first doing uh, Z and Two Noughts he thought of casting them If memory serves, Tarson said that he wanted to get them and they were unavailable and so they ended up with the uh, Lowenstein uh, brothers ironically, another pair of brothers uh, <laughs> they are from Germany and they've done a bunch of stuff. To me it looked a lot like the work of Adam Jones who um, is associated with uh, a lot of the to me anyway, to the videos for Tool, um, which I, I, I love those better than the, the, the music of Tool. Uh, I would watch those videos whenever, but, uh, yeah, it looks fantastic. And it, it's such a brief moment that I even forget that it's there, but it's very nice that it is there and kind of takes us even farther into the world of the fantastical and that, it, it happens to be that she's got the big bandage on her head and it's just like, okay, you know, what, what is going on in her head and takes us more into that head that we've been in for the last hour and a half by this time. Yeah. It's, 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 it's it is an incredible sequence. And I mean, I'm sure probably the, the K brothers were just, you know, maybe they were too expensive. Maybe it just take them too long. Cause that kind of animation is extremely time consuming. I mean, you know, they, they made three, four second promos for MTV that took them months. Um, uh, but I mean, obviously, it's, it's 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 very much part of the kind of handcrafted nature of the fall. Is if, if we're going to have an animated sequence, we're going to have a painstaking frame by frame stop motion animated sequence. You know, not not a bit of computer generated animation, or you know, that that that, that notion of everything's believable, everything's done by hand. Um, I think is 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 really key. But also, you know, you think about the narrative live action feature films that break into little bits of animation i mean they're they're kind of few and far between but they tend to be those films that we you know we kind of hold to our breasts with pride thinking you know this is where narrative feature filmmaking gets really experimental think of um powell and pressburg as a matter of life and death when david niven closes those giant eyes before going to surgery and you see about 30 seconds of just abstract back of the eye color almost stand breakage before the facts or or the um the, the stargate sequence in 2001 which looks like it could have been done by jordan belson you know just abstract animation for 15 minutes it's you know i think the fall belongs in this kind of rarefied company of films that just you know they'll do whatever it takes they'll, they will just push the boundaries of the medium and just push your expectations it's the googly again you know you think you're watching one kind of film here's you know here's 15 seconds of animation <laughs> which you weren't expecting you know, it's that sense of wonder and awe. It wants to make you actually care about going back to the cinema again. Just a shame no one saw it. The strange thing, though, is that it seems that there's either there's two groups of people in relation to this film. There's the folks like us who absolutely love it and think it's great visually and it's great in telling a story. I don't think anyone denies how great it is visually, but it, it seems like the, one of the criticisms that's been pointed at it is that it's style over substance, which is, to me, a, just a lot of bullshit. Uh, but, I'm, I mean, I'm just wondering, is there a thinking that you can't have a film look this beautiful uh, have representations visually about story elements 
and actually tell a great story. I mean, is that a way of thinking or I, I don't get it? Which critics are saying that? Because it, it, it strikes me as being the same, as you say, bullshit, but it's the same bullshit that British critics, for one, I don't know how bad the Australians and the Americans are at this, but British critics are always nailing anything that has the audacity to throw in some highbrow art historical, you know, art history um, illusions and tell a good story and be fun and be entertaining. It's the same crap they said about Powell and Pressburger. It's the same crap they said about Nicholas Rogan. Ken Russell, you know, too clever by half. And it's certainly the same crap they say about Peter Greenaway. Um, I just think sometimes people don't like a film that shoots too high and is pretty but has a brain. You know, I think they just, they think that you can be clever or you can be pretty, but you can't be both. And that's just, uh, I mean, uh, that's for me to the impoverishment of cinema. Uh, you know, the best films in the world, like The Hunter, The Beauty and the Bee, you know, The Cocktail, La Bella and the Bet. They're beautiful and they have intelligence. And the fall, you know, is again in that kind of company. Um, so I, I, it's kind of just sour grapes. I think, film, you know, sometimes critics just don't like their films to have too much in them. And the other problem is, as you said, how you saw it, you've seen it twice now, Mars. Yes, I have. Yep. And you said you need to see it about ten more times. Most I think critics, I do. Yep. Yeah, most critics probably saw it after a long slog at the Toronto Film Festival, and they'd seen four other films that day, and they only saw it once, and they had to put pen to paper and try and make sense of it. And it's just not that kind of film. But even after the first film, I knew. Oh, so after the first time, I knew I had to see it again. There was something that struck me emotionally, and I'll confess, I didn't get all of the plot elements. The first time, partly because, I mean, like, who watches an English language film with the subtitles on? Well, maybe occasionally I do. But the first time I watched it, I was sort of having to turn the volume up thinking, hang on, what's, what's Alex saying? And then I had to turn it down when the music got very loud. Uh, and then the second time I watched it, I thought, no, I better watch it with the subtitles on. And I caught a whole lot more of what was actually happening. And I know that every time I watch it, I'm going to get something more out of it, even if it's little story elements or just something emotive. But I want to now push this film onto everyone I know. Uh, Do you like film? Well, get ready to be blown away by film. Watch this. Um, Really, this is going to be a part of my life. I'm a huge fan. I mean, watch it again and just look for oranges. Watch it again and just look for butterflies. You know, there are just so many things that are happening in here. You know, I talked about the religious angle. Watch it again and think about that. You know, when uh, he's talking about uh, Lady Evelyn and he's uh, saying like, oh, he knew everything about her. He knew her favorite food, her favorite book. And then Alexandria pops up with the Bible. And it's just like, you know, there's so many different things that just run through this whole story that – you yeah you can mine this movie for so long and still just keep coming up with gold you can really tell that this was such a passion project for tarsum and i love that alexandria kind of becomes tarsum in a bit because she has that box of all those little goodies that she has found and tarsum sold this film with boxes he would have a box and he would open it up and have all of these items in there and then tell the story through the items. And that comes back with her and the way that she does this. And even listening again to the audio commentary and hearing Dan Gilroy talk about how many changes were made during this movie. It was like, oh yeah, well, it started off with a puppet show and we're talking about storytelling that way and that kind of got dropped or we went this way with it, but then that got dropped. And it's just like, 
and you listen sometimes you know i listen to the audio commentaries and i'll just be like oh man that would have oh why did that idea get lost that was so great that was such a wonderful idea and maybe they were great ideas but at the end of the day this movie delivers and it's not one of those like missed opportunities where i'm like oh if only they had done that one little thing this could have been so much better i think they find the tune the hell out of this movie they, they, they really did and, and and what's great is that they're saying going back to this they made the film that they wanted to make as you say it's a perfect project and and you know how many as you say is this a kissing movie you know going back to the princess bride how many films end <laughs> with that fantastic that to more where the, um oh god what, what's her name the, the, the nurse slash princess uh evelyn, evelyn yeah evelyn kind of tries to make up with um uh with with Roy's character, the mass band. Like, yeah, exactly. It's like, well, I'm, you know, I'm sorry about everything. It was all kind of a misunderstanding. And and both he and Alexandra just sort of cross their arms, left to say, you know what, piss off. And it just, you know, <laughs> the film that doesn't, the fairy tale that doesn't end in a kiss and a romantic clinch, but ends with a mass bandit going off with a child because it's like, you know, we don't have time for you, lady. You screwed us around. Forget it. It's just, and again, it's not a commercial choice, but it, it's the right choice for this film. It was a funny choice because that's the other thing we haven't talked about. This film's funny. Luigi's hilarious. Darwin's hilarious. It's you know the fact that the, as you say that the, the, the great mass bandit can't swim is funny. Um, yet it turns on a dime. I mean, I, I I always you know love a film that can make you laugh one minute and then make you choke on the laughter the next because it you know there are especially around Luigi's demise. I mean, it goes from kind of broad comedy to just brutality really quickly, um, and those tonal shifts I think are, are navigated superbly. Um, that's another thing about the film I think is really impressive. I almost feel guilty for laughing at a couple of bits of either violence or implied violence. That bit where Luigi opens up his coat and he says, kaboom, he's got a cigar in his mouth and they all die. But it's it's funny and, and yet, it's, yet it's brutal. And then there's the bit earlier on where uh, Alex comes out as a, uh, uh, as the masked bandit's daughter. Hello, daddy. Hello, daddy. Shoot him, daddy. Shoot him, daddy. And <laughs> I'm laughing and she's telling, go murder this guy. But it's, it's, it's horrible and yet it's funny all at once. The one thing too, talking about film is that the only advantage, you know, of film versus Alexandria's imagination is the permanence of film or the, what could be permanence of film. And so that we were talking about this movie in 2019, coming out in 2006 originally, that it took so long to make this movie, but they managed to capture it and capture all of those moments. And then there's the idea of at the end when she sees Roy on screen and you have to wonder to yourself, is Roy now walking or is Roy, is this a image of Roy before his accident? And also when we see the movie and we see him fall and we realize he didn't need to fall off that horse at all. This whole stunt could have been done with just better coverage. And that's basically how they shoot it together is we don't see that spectacular thing that we saw at the beginning of this movie, that beautiful black and white shots of all this slow motion with the Beethoven going over it. That takes place in a matter of a second on screen <laughs> being played to this kind of cheesy violin and just all these kids laughing and stuff. It's like, okay, that, you know, one is shot as a tragedy and, and it's presented as a comedy. 
And then, like I said, we get to see later on, it's her narrating again, but in a different way. It's her just actually vocally narrating and talking about how she sees Roy. And it's like, okay, was this a moment before or is this a moment after? And we don't know because of, you know, when is this set? When was this shot? And then that beautiful montage that it leads into of all of the different sight gags that we're going to get through so much of this and just that we are seeing these moments in now 2019 that were shot a hundred years ago and they still have that power, you know, look at Buster Keaton's career and look at Buster Keaton's output. And it's just like, my God, how can something that was shot that long ago still just be so uproariously funny? And it is every single time. I've shown the Buster Keaton shorts to my daughter, like when she was maybe about seven or eight and, yeah, she laughed. Actually, for that matter, uh, I, I was able to take Max, my son, to see um, some of the Buster Keaton films that had live musical accompaniment by a local group called the Blue Grassy Knoll uh, as maybe like a, a four or five-year-old. I'll, I'll tell you a story about them in a sec, but we were able to see, um, I, I can't remember if it was The General or Steamboat Bill, and we saw like on the big screen – and he had ice cream over his face, and he was just laughing the whole way through. And it, it, don't let anyone tell you, I don't watch black and white films. Here's a child watching a film honestly for what it was, a great and funny film. Uh, just as a little bit of an aside to uh, The Blue Grassy Knoll, and I know that you'll appreciate this, Mike. Uh, I'd read a story where that band, uh, who normally play you know, acoustic instruments, you know, according with their name, but there was a time where they um, rented out uh, a small bu- cinema bar somewhere in the northern part of Melbourne, and they were showing uh, 70s porn films with, and they would they strapped on electric instruments and were playing live waka 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 chaka 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 music to to these 70s films. <laughs> so very talented guys. Just just thinking though, you talk about the stunt and, and how obviously. The stunt means it's such a seismic event in, in the life of the characters in the movie, but when it's actually in the film, no one notices it. I mean, that again really makes you rethink the film you're seeing. You know, you start realizing that the, the, the individual contributions that, that make a film what it is, they might they might seem minute on screen, but they were you know seismic when you're actually making it. But it also you know makes you rethink the title of the film because. I always forget in a way. It's weird. I always forget that the fall, of course, refers the title of the film refers to him falling off the bridge that is the fall but actually the title is so symbolically loaded with other possible meanings that really do the film does kind of flesh out that it, it's hard to think of it just being oh the fall brackets from the bridge it's it's the fall it's the fall from eden it's 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 la chute it's Camus. it's, it's there's just so many things that you can throw that the film throws up that you could again you can kind of take or leave but um you know even the title is one of these things that will leave you kind of chewing over it for a couple of days yeah, and then there's that, that also that great fall from Darwin that happens in here that just again takes your breath away. In the most fantastic coat ever. I could see you rocking that coat, just by the way. It's a great coat. It's a great coat, yeah. <laughs> I can't remember. There was some point of the film where he wasn't wearing the coat, and I think he might have had like a white shirt and a bowler hat. And I was thinking, oh, he looks like. Uh, he looks like Alex Delage in, in you know, Clockwork Orange. Yeah, when I think about it, too, the, the Indian dies from a fall. I mean, I guess Oda Benga doesn't, and neither does Luigi or the Mystic. Oh, God, the Mystic, when he's just, that is probably the most brutal area. 
and then finally all the birds that were in his belly coming out. It is talk about a wonderful moment of surrealism. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to me that, that it's going to lose me some, some some listeners. To me, that actually completely blows away the scene at the beginning of Tarkovsky's Nostalgia, where they open up the um, the kind of the the effigy of the Madonna and all the birds fly out of it, and that's a great scene. But I think the birds coming out of the mouth just trumps it. It's it's just an incredible moment. I still don't know how they did that. <laughs> uh, well, apparently they were biting the inside of his mouth when they tried it with a real bird. It might be a digital bird after that. Okay, okay mate, mate, let's, let's, yeah. But I'm not surprised that they were biting. Wow. Okay. Nothing like having a bird bite your tongue, I'm sure. So instead of cat got your tongue, it's bird got your tongue. All right. On that note, we're going to take a break and play an interview with production designer Jed Clark, and we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. How to continue a television series after a major actor has left the cast. Part 2. The Blake 7 Method. Remove the character from the script. Introduce a new replacement character. Eventually, few of the original characters will be present, and the series will barely resemble its original form. For more about British science fiction television, listen to the British Invaders podcast. www.britishinvaders.com I am thrilled to introduce Ovid.tv, the new streaming service for arthouse films, documentaries, and international cinema. Described by the New York Times as a haven for indie gems, Ovid.tv features films such as Claire Denis' Trouble Every Day, Deborah Granick's Stray Dog, and Raul Ruiz's Time Regained. As a special introductory offer for Projection Booth listeners, you can save 50% off the first three months of your subscription. Just head on over to ovid.tv, that's ovid.tv, sign up with the coupon code PODCAST, and you'll get ovid.tv for just $3.50 per month for three months. The offer expires August 31st, so act now. You'll have access to hundreds of films not available on any other platform, which you can start streaming on all of your favorite devices, such as Apple TV and my personal favorite, the Roku. Once again, go over to ovid.tv, ovid.tv, sign up with the coupon code podcast, and you'll get ovid.tv for just $3.50 per month for three months. Act now. Hello from Cinema Detroit. We are Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema and also the only first-run, seven-day-a-week movie theater in greater downtown. We deliver an eclectic mix of mainstream art, indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine or a DJ mixing a set, we handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the metro area, the state of Michigan, or the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features a unique setting in a former furniture store and a warm neighborhood atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.org, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you soon at 4126 3rd Street in the city, 48201. 
Hi there, faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts catchers both android and ios i know you went to school for art i'm curious what got you interested in that and how did you turn that into a production design career it was very difficult where i lived at the time in berkshire to be able to get to london to any of the art schools at the time um, you had to study in your own county which was berkshire fortunately by certain events, I managed to get a place at Chelsea School of Art, went up there, absolutely loved it, and went right through the college from foundation through to the degree. I'd intended to go on at that point to go and do a master's in Holland because my brother was working there. And at the time, uh, it was possible to go on to be an artist there if you went through this system there. But it, uh, I went to see Atelier 63 out there and they just said, no, you're you're, you're there, you're doing it already, just go back and be an artist, which is what I thought I'd be all my life, a sort of suffering artist. Um, but I came back and um, just by chance, I ended up having an exhibition of work in a space in Fulham uh, in London and uh, where I was living. The chap that owned this space was doing nothing with it, but having these amazing parties and exhibitions. And I said, why don't you do something with it? A year later, he said, why don't you? So I turned it into a film studio, having known nothing about it. That was in the early 1980-81, and that was right at the very beginning of pop videos. Nothing happened for about three, four months, and then all of a sudden, one job came in, and it rollercoastered, and we ended up doing hundreds and hundreds of pop videos and later commercials, smaller commercials. It wasn't a huge studio um, at Fulham Studios, and uh, we had just about everybody in the door at some point for one reason or another, making pop videos, you know, things like Aha, Take On Me, we had Elton John, Tina Turner, everybody. So I got into it very quickly, uh, setting up the studio. And because of my art background, ended up working in art department a little bit, you know, ended up building some smaller sets and uh, with a little crew of my own, started making smaller pop videos for uh, production companies that didn't have a whole heap of money for people like David Cassidy, who you may remember. Uh, and uh, it just rollercoasted. And I ended up doing one particular job it was uh, my, one of my very first commercials and did a, a barber shop. And um, a particular producer saw that and went, wow, I'm going to get you to work with a particular uh, up-and-coming director, Gerard Tame, who in the early 80s kind of really made it very, or mid-80s, I should say, by then, made it very big in the world of commercials over here and, uh, and worldwide, eventually. But through that work that I did with him, which is mainly black and white, all shot on film, um, I was noticed by a little Indian director called Tarsim, who um, was just coming out of college and said that he wanted to work with me. He wanted to work in England. He came over here. And uh, that was in 1992. And I've just finished, recently finished a commercial with him. Um, and I've worked with him now. I don't know what it is, 27 years, something like that. So, um, there was a time when I was working pretty nonstop with him, you know, uh, year in, year out. So the Aha Take On Me video was shot in your studio? Every time I ever go into a bar and they're showing old pop videos of the 80s, uh, I just seem to be saying, oh, yeah, we did that one. Oh, yeah, we did that one. Hundreds and hundreds of all those, both uh, 
English and American bands of, of the early 80s, so many came through the door. When you're working on these commercials, and now when you're starting to work with Tarsum in 1992, what kind of work are you doing? Designing. I started off just helping out and building sets, because all studios in, in England in, in the 80s had a local construction company. They had their own construction company. So when people asked, can you build this? I said, yes, I could and did. Uh, and if I if it was too big for me, I had a connection with a much bigger construction company. So I did I would coordinate that. Uh, but very quickly, I started designing. About 1984, I started designing sets. Um, and pretty much that was it, straight in as production designer. But I had seen an awful lot of production designers come in through the door, some very good ones, and learned an awful lot from them, uh, what things to do right, what things to do wrong. I had a background from, from my father in drafting, so I understood how to design a set. I could draw, so just put the two together, and then it's coordinating and working with, with a team, really. So slowly put that together. And that's how it, that's how it uh, came about, really. I've seen a lot of your spots, and just the look of them is remarkable. Uh, I, I can't even imagine how you begin to go about working on these things and coming up with the, with the look of them. usually starts with reading a script or treatment from a director. Years ago, it used to be just a script. Nowadays, it's always a treatment. And from that, I would go away and do research. I have thousands and thousands of books at home. Um, then, of course, since the internet's made it so much easier to research and find more visual images. So I pretty much start from scratch, looking originally for particular particular um, room sets or locations to start with and style. I base it on that. Once I gather enough information, I then figure out what style I would like to take it in. Invariably, that's discussing that with a director and usually they would go along with it or there's a look that they would like to create to start with that I run with. There have been times when there is absolutely nothing at all and I'll they'll just say come up with something and, and, I, and invariably I do. I'll run in a certain direction they go yes carry on and just keep going or there's something that's very particular for instance uh, a couple of years ago I did a a big commercial for Hennessy which was all about Marshall Major Taylor who was um, the fastest man on earth on a bicycle in 1900, the very first black world champion of any sport, really, who rode on the track around 1896 to sort of 1910, really, but mainly around 1900 was when he was breaking world records and so on. So that was very particular. So I had to have bikes specially made, track bikes made of circa 1900, which I had made in England. So, but the style of all of that, I had to create the whole look and style based on what I knew from research and reading books on him. So that, that's very particular look. So it has to go in one very strong direction. Whereas a lot of things that I've done, and especially with Tarsim, have been partially fantasy, I suppose. So you can just run riot and Tarsum's never been afraid to use color. A lot of directors prefer not to, but he, coming from India, color is, uh, you know, you just go with it and just keep going. And um, so I, I, a lot of the things I've done with him have been very intense with color. And it's been easy for me to just express myself uh, with film sets and design through uh, his eyes, I guess. Um, but I have, you know, obviously I work with plenty of other directors. You can see that uh, I apply the same methods research and then design and proposals and so on and then eventually designing the actual sets and and making them happen really so tell me about the fall and it must be a, a lot more intense to go from 
long-form videos, commercials, commercial campaigns to doing a whole feature film. Yes, it was a wonderful and most enjoyable thing I've ever done, I guess, because it was more relaxed for me. Commercials are very intense. They're all you, you get a script two weeks later, you're shooting it. So it's intense. It's, you know, it can be 17, 18 or 24 hours a day, a lot of those jobs. Um, the fall was far more relaxed. I Tarsen came up um, and mentioned about this story, Yo Ho Ho, uh, which he had as an idea, um, an old Romanian story that he had in about 1993-94. And from that moment on, we always talked about ideas. And because we were shooting around the world, everywhere we went, we'd say, oh, maybe we could shoot this scene here or maybe we should do that scene there. And between himself and his co-writer, they wrote that script based very much on the, the story they wanted to tell, but also included all of the um, locations that we thought we were going to shoot at, many of which we did. A couple we didn't because they were in America, and at that time you couldn't really work in America without paying huge fees for actors and so on. So we, we, it was always in the intention to pretty much make it in either Europe. Well, it was going to be in Europe. We actually, I actually designed all the sets to be made on a stage, uh, Buftia Studios in uh, Romania. Um, and we had a deal with them or setting up the deal with them, but it just didn't quite happen. And at that point, Tarsen said, we either make it or forget it. So I'd been working on the film for about six years before we actually did make it. So, um, you know, pulling references, buying books. I've had thousands of books and we pretty much worked out how we were going to shoot that long before it ever came to pass. Uh, and then it was all the nitty gritty about all the little details and so on. But uh, it, it, it ended up with the, we shot an awful lot in South Africa, converting an old uh, wing of a hospital in the end, completely transforming because it's derelict. Um, so we put floors, ceilings, doors, staircases and walls, everything in there. And most of the props for that uh, came from England. They didn't really have the props there. So I shipped by container most of the props from UK prop houses. Um, so we did all that there. We did the train sequence there. We did the burning of the house and a few other, the orange groves, a few other things, all California we shot in South Africa and then went off to India to shoot all around India, then up to Ladakh. And then that was all done in one year, one whole year from beginning to pretty much. Then the following year, as we, everyone was out of money. I was down to my last pence really. And, um, from the, for the following year, we were doing commercials. And everywhere we did a commercial, Tarsem planned it so that we would shoot a sequence, extra sequence of the fall. So if we were in Spain, we'd shoot the cowboy sequence. So we'd bring the actors in for that. If we were in Brazil, we'd shoot um, sequences for that. If we were in um, Argentina, we, we shot, you know, the floor of the Indian, uh, the wife of the Indian, for instance, um, and also the uh, Darwin's uh, conservatory, his home. Um, and then we'd shoot, we were shooting a Pepsi commercial and we went to Fiji and shot, shot Butterfly Island where the, the, all the bandits are, um, marooned, uh, on the, on the island, the Blue Island. And that's where they meet the elephant and escape from there and so on. So, uh, with a lot of this would been, had been figured out, but we shot, I think it was shot in about 26, 27 countries. I didn't do every single one because they went off. There was, a, there was a second unit that ran round, literally with costumes, grabbed horses, grabbed some locals and shot everywhere from Angkor Wat to Monument Valley, as it happens in the end. The pyramids all around the world, all various places, just with a very, very small unit, a producer. It was the production manager of, 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 of 
a cameraman and the costume, literally just that. My God, the logistics involved in that, just to be able to have your actors available at all these different locations sounds amazing. Well, they loved it. Of course, being shipped into South, South America or, you know, to China or wherever we were shooting, it was, it was great for them. Well, and that's the thing about the movie is it just looks fantastic. It, it just pops right off of the screen. Yes, it's, uh, it was something that we talked about so much, so intensely for so long. I think we had figured out an awful lot. There was one particular commercial we were shooting in India, and I just happened to go to, we were staying in a hotel in Joppa, and I just happened to go to the bookshop that they had there. And there was somebody who had taken some photographs, black and white they were, in uh, Ladakh. And I bought the book and took it to Tarsum and said, have you shot in Ladakh? And he said, no, I haven't. I know it, but, you know, I don't know what's there. So we looked at the book and went, wow, this is amazing. This this would be incredible in color. And um, so we, when a project came up, um, uh, we sent out a scout who, who went right round and shot most of uh, all around Ley and out to Magnetic Hill and all around, right, right through to um, – Rambipur Plain and uh, the lake where we shot um, the burning tree and so on. Found all of that, and when we got it all all that back, we thought, wow, the commercial actually didn't happen, but we thought, all right, that's in the locker for the fall. And, of course, when the fall came along, that was exactly what we did, and that's where we took, for instance, the princess carriage, which we built in uh, Mumbai. Uh, and that was, that was one of 87 designs that I made, but actually that was number one design that we went with in the end, um, built it in Mumbai, broke it down, put it onto six trucks. It took six days to drive it up to the, the Himalayas, to Ladakh, rebuilt there. Uh, we all became acclimatized um, to the rarefied air, and um, then we shot it. And that's how that sequence happened. So, yeah, it's, uh, it was, uh, most of it was thought out well in advance, but as, we, as things didn't work out or did work out, we, we changed things. Um, for instance, we were going to shoot uh, just outside Jaipur on a salt lake, and we were going to create the face of the priest, which you do see in the sequence. And we were going to do it in chilies, red chilies. We'd shot a Coca-Cola commercial. We found a field of red chilies. We laid them out to dry. So we were going to create that uh, his face, the priest's face, with these different colors, chilies, you know, red, orange, yellow, and so on. We'd already done that for a different commercial in London, strangely enough, where we created people's faces with leaves on the ground being blown around. So we knew that we could put the two together. But when we got to that lake, uh, it was under six inches of water, salt lake. I mean, it was a stunning lake, but it would have taken two weeks uh, of the whole crew and cast waiting for that to dry up. So we said, forget it, we'll carry on. But when we got to Ladakh, we found um, a location just below Thixi Monastery, and um, it just had elements that were perfect to create it against white because the priest was wearing white. So we thought, not a problem, we'll, we'll shoot it that way. So we built the elements there to form the face. So that's how the positions kind of came about by accident sometimes. Come on, Jed, isn't this going to be easier to just, you know, put these people in a studio and shoot them against a green screen? We didn't shoot anything green screen on the whole movie. <laughs> It was nothing. It was all in camera. I think the only thing that was enhanced a little bit was the um, was the map on um, the body of the mystic. That was the only thing where whilst Darwin was drawing out the map from his gibberish that he was coming out with, it was forming 
on underneath his skin. And that's about the only thing that was actually enhanced uh, in any post whatsoever. I think we took out some wires um, that were holding up the uh, tree um, in on the lake uh, simply because uh, the water was so the sand was so shallow there was water like two inches under the sand so we couldn't hold a tree up other than connect it with the wire so that was taken out it was more taking things out in post than than anything else it was all it's all in camera everything so what's that working relationship like with you and Tarsum because you've worked together for so long do you have like a shorthand where you just say oh it's like this commercial or it's like this thing we've done before he'll sometimes just quote a name and I know what he means by that we did as i said we did this commercial where we had to create all faces in various things we created them with seaweed on a beach we created them uh when a windscreen wiper wiped across the screen in, in rain it created a face um we and as i said we did this other one with leaves at sunset house looking out of a window chaps just drinking coffee looks at a house outside the window and there are all these leaves blowing around and it forms a face so it reminds people of people they know and that's what that commercial was about so that sequence of the face forming the face was from that idea. So you just quote that and say, we're going to do that, but in chilies. Now, the chilies, as I said, we were doing a Coca-Cola commercial in India and Pakistan. And um, that's, how, that's how we just put the two together. And, um, you know, it's just little ideas, little nuggets of ideas that we talk about. Uh, just when, we, when we were on the road, we were on the road, you know, 12 months of the year all the time. So we could talk about the fall all the time. And I'd say, oh, have you seen this book? No, let's have a look. Oh, wow, that, oh, wow, that's, you know, interesting. Maybe we could uh, shoot there for such and such a scene. So uh, things develop from that. You know, uh, there was one reference I pulled uh, when we were in Romania, and I said, um, I just found this uh, X-ray man, and it's a chap all in leather with a, uh, a helmet, a lead, lead helmet and a lead cape, and he looked like something like Ned Kelly, uh, the, the Australian um, out, out back chap. And, um, I said, this would be very interesting as the thing that Alexandria is frightened by in the corridor going to an x-ray room. I'll, I'll, I've got an x-ray room. We'd plan to shoot in an x-ray room. We did a little bit, but we'd plan to do a much bigger scene in the x-ray room with a big x-ray machine. Um, and when Tarsum saw that, he said, great, send that straight to ACO. You know, ACO is the costume designer and, uh, we'll create, um, the henchman based on that character. So if you saw this leather-clad x-ray man, it basically it, take that and fantasize it, and it becomes the henchman in the fall. Black leather. Yes, yeah, so th this is how these ideas come about. It, there was always the mention of the henchman, but no one had actually figured out what they would look like, who they were. They just had to be frightening. Um, and, of course, it meant that we could shoot them anywhere, just put someone in the suit. So we had, I think we had four or five hero close-up leather suits that were stunningly made by, um, it was funny enough, my model maker, special effects man, Adam Howarth. Um, and he worked for a company over here called Artem, but eventually he went freelance. And he got a group of guys together that um, made some fantastic models for me, but made nearly all of the costume, all the specialist helmets and uh, suits and so on. And uh, so Aiko's design, she, she went and worked at his workshop and drew up all these designs and they, they sculpted them and made them all from her ideas. You know, obviously she'd, she'd draw three or four different ideas, show them to us and he'd like a particular one. 
uh, bounced back at her. And a lot of those things came from certain aspects of references that I may have shown Tarsim in the past, you know, about, uh, for instance, the Indian and how what he would wear and what uh, his costume would, an armor and sword would be. And based on that and the fact that the, we wanted all, the, all of them in very different colors. So we decided color wise. Uh, which each character would be. We wanted Darwin in red. That became, of course, the labor suits and so on. We wanted the Indian in green because we'd been in Jaipur and we'd shot in previously on two or three occasions uh, commercials at the uh, palace in Jaipur. There's one particular door there that's phenomenal. And uh, that's where you, the opening scene of the, the Indian, it, where he, we find him asleep against this incredibly decorated door in Jaipur. So um, that's why we wanted to play with colors. And we thought very carefully about what colors each of the characters would be. And I think red always plays a very strong theme throughout all of Tarsen's work and certainly mine as well. Um, and as I said, most and many other directors would steer away from the color, strong color red, but we fly at it. And uh, so that's how, you know, the mask became red. Uh, and so many, and of course, the, the princess carriage, again, red. Um, and although it's a very dominating color in, on screen, I think it works with certainly Tarsem's work. When you're putting together a production design for um, another film or, or a, uh, uh, another commercial or whatever, do you come in with like, after you've read the script, do you, what are you doing? Are you creating like a portfolio and, or a mood board? And you're saying, I want it to be like this, or you have the actual drawings. I mean, how are you doing that? No, I nearly always start off with research first. For instance, I did a film called The Number Station, and that was kind of post-Cold War field. Uh, so I was looking originally at all of the post-war bunkers that were set up in this country during the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. There's quite a few that still exist. Um, so I started with that and then developed that and thought it would be great with all the greys and concrete, but to contrast that with a certain amount of colour. So I started off with that and then we started looking at locations as well. So it's a combination of what locations we can make work. We thought we were going to shoot the whole thing in Belgium, actually. And we went to Belgium on a recce, but it turned out that it'd be more expensive shooting there than it would be in England. So we ended up coming back to England. But we were going to shoot in a, in a coal mine, uh, funny enough, uh, for that. And uh, it was just that there were so many rooms on the ground level that had tiled walls, which we really loved the idea of doing. But we came away from that in the end and went more with an underground feel. But that has a very strong art direction in it, too, simply through the use of color uh, in contrast to the grays that, that you feel underground. So you talked about the salt lake that had water over it, and I'm curious about some of the other challenges that you faced while you're making the fall. I can't remember too many challenges, really, because it's such fun. And because I'd designed pretty much everything before, Tarsten gave us the green light because he funded the whole film. So it, it was for him to say yay or nay whether we did something. And he, he, I was only answerable to him and obviously to the budget. But if there was something that I designed that was going to cost so much money, um, his producer would, would flag it up and I'd discuss it with Tarsim and he'd say yes or no, don't spend the money, spend the money somewhere else or yeah, go with it. I'm happy to go. So he, it was great working with him in that sense. Um, yes, there were challenges, of course, with certain things. I, I can't, not too many come to mind, to be honest, um, because it was just such great fun, the whole thing. And 
everywhere I went and took designs, people just took it and ran with it and just loved it. So um, it made my life very easy. You know, shooting in uh, Italy, we had to, we, we decided we were going to shoot lots of uh, elements for Alexander the Great in Rome, in ancient Roman ruins. Uh, it's easy. You go to Cinecita and they've got these huge heads, you know, literally 20 foot heads that made of polystyrene and plaster that were from Ben-Hur back in the 60s. So can we put one on a truck? Sure, yeah. Let's take it to Villa Adriana. Let's take it there and shoot it, you know, with Alexander on a horse there. Great. So it was all wonderful and possible. You know, everyone made it possible. And talking about those commercials, we'd, we'd choose a commercial. I think we were doing a Cisco commercial in Italy at the time. And... Um, so it was it was very easy to keep the crew a day later because the, we were familiar with the crew. We, the crew knew us and they all were longing to hear about how we were getting on with the fall or wanted to see it. So Tarsem had edited the opening sequence and everywhere we went, he showed it to people. And of course, they were so wowed by it, that opening black and white sequence. They wanted to be a part of it. So everyone worked for free and we had the camera equipment already on the back of the commercial hired out. And we'd just keep it for an extra day with a deal. So you just have almost everything for free. You know, people were giving us locations for nothing. So it made it possible um, to go pretty much around the world and do all these things. Um, And then the special, my model maker, special effects supervisor, his wife at the time was a costume designer of her own who worked under ACO. And she had access to all the costume houses in london so she would bring you know whatever it was all these cowboys to down to spain while we were shooting a pepsi commercial or we were shooting um uh what was it um i can't remember it was uh, it was like a t-mobile um shooting in italy on an in an ice rink we were actually shooting a rock festival in in an ice rink we couldn't find anywhere else we were, but believe it or not we were in, in an ice rink in rome and uh, we decided we were going to shoot all the backdrops for the end sequence. So I think we did about six or seven backdrops, which we hired and created all the little sets that you see with all of the um, stunts right at the very end of the film um, on an ice rink in Rome. And, and that's how we just pieced the whole thing together. Just little elements shot here and there. I, uh, we ended up shooting an awful lot of the hand shots of uh, Alexandria, who's Katinka, and she was in Romania, but we just needed a hand. So, in fact, my son at the time, uh, we used his hand for putting things in and out of the box, used my hand as Darwin's hand for writing all the maps and writing all the routes in a studio and on little explosions and squibs and stuff like that with suits and so on. So um, that we shot in London. So uh, every every time we did a commercial, we shot another element, another part of the film. So he pieced the whole thing together. That took another year. So the fall was two years in the making. So what's it like for you when you finally get to see this thing projected on the big screen? I think the first time I saw it completely together uh, was a BAFTA in London uh, for the screening there. Um, yeah, it was a bit frightening, really, because I'd put my heart and soul into this thing for sort of eight years, really. You know, I knew what I was getting. I photographed nearly everything. Uh, from day one on a camera myself. I wish I'd taken a, a big, bigger format camera, really, but I just took, took around a little um, Canon camera and uh, captured nearly everything every way we went, um, from props to all the locations, sets, boo builds, and so on. So it's all well documented, and I'm only just now starting to play that and starting to do it on, uh, put it all together on Instagram. 
Yeah, I was wondering if you're going to do like a coffee table book or something. I did, actually. I did this too, believe it or not. There is this book. Right, that's a book of four by Tarsen. Okay, so this book, I'm going to open it for you. It's a, uh, you can see, look, you see that. This is an old age one. You can see the mask there, look. This book is for cast and crew only. It's a labyrinth. That sequence, that shot, oh my God, just so gorgeous. Well, that came about, again, from that same Coca-Cola commercial we were shooting up beyond Jaipur, and it was just near where we found the field of chilies was this step well uh, at Abenary Bioli. So, um, yeah, so that was pretty amazing. And that's how we knew about that one. Yeah, fortunately, um, Tarsen's friend, Steve Bergman, who he was at college with at um, Art Centre, came along to uh, South Africa. He's actually, funny enough, the projectionist that you see in the hospital at the end, right at the very end, showing the, the, the movies, the Western, where Roy had broken his back, basically, uh, and lost the use of his legs. So Steve brought along a big format camera and used it throughout South Africa and most of India. And then he couldn't go to Ladakh. So I took the camera up to Ladakh and took all the shots up there with that camera. So, But there's, there's lots, you know, there's, there's a page on every single person. And Those costumes, that helmet is just amazing. Yeah, uh, and I think Tarsen still got that somewhere. So uh, the amazing thing about the hospital was that all my designs that I originally made were based on real uh, references pulled from medical books and so on. And um, so I designed the sets. And then when uh, the studios fell through in Romania and we couldn't build the sets on the stage, um, there was the possibility... Tommy Turtle, a producer, knew of a producer down in Cape Town and said, look, he just put the word out and this guy came back and said, well, there is this one place. I don't know if it'll work for you, but come down and have a look. So he sent photos and um, Tarsem and Tommy called me into the office at Radical Media and just said, look, if you don't think this will work, we just won't do it. But if you think this would work for the hospital scenes, let us know. We'll go down there and we'll check it out. And I looked at it and I just went, oh, my God, this is almost identical to my original sketches, my original designs. And if you look at them side by side, they are the same. Um, so especially this scene, actually, funny enough, that particular scene, I did a draw, and it's exactly that. And there, so, but, but the place was in a shocking state. Um, we had to replace all the windows, rip out all sorts of stuff, uh, sort out the floors and so on, and staircases and everything. So, and a lot of it we had to build as well. So, um, but anyway, that's that's that book, which is, as I said, just for cast and crew. Um, there's not that many of them. I think they go if if one ever comes up on eBay, I think they're about seven eight hundred pounds, dollars. But straight after the film, I made my own book of my photos. So that's that's my book. So um, that's sealed. It was one of those Apple books, and unfortunately, because Apple stopped doing, uh, I think, Mobile Me, I lost all of the rest. So I've got a couple of those, but um, so they're pretty rare. Those books of just my images that I took. took. But um, as I said, I'm starting to post those on Instagram right now. So, and then many of my, uh, yeah, it's, I think it's uh, Jed Clark sets. You can follow on that one. Well, what are you working on now? 
Uh, right now, I'm just working on a, pos- on a treatment at the moment that a, a director's sent through for a Nissan commercial. Um, and uh, I'm just waiting to hear about whether that one's going to happen. That, they're talking about shooting that in either Poland or South Africa. And I'm also working on a big project, if it happens, with a friend of mine about a family called Bonato. It's a, a story about three generations. The, uh, the first uh, chap is Barney Bonato, who became the king of diamonds um, in, in uh, South Africa. He uh, came from nothing and uh, ended up being uh, the major shareholder in De Beers. His son, Wolf Bonato, was one of the famous Bentley boys. I don't know if you've heard about the Bentley boys. They won Le Mans, uh, so many times, won Le Mans three times in a row. And then his daughter, Diana, was the first woman to ever break the sound barrier. So amazing dynasty, amazing family, amazing stories. So I'm working on that at the moment. We're trying to develop that and see if that one will take off as either a feature film, but ideally something as a TV drama, a three series or even a single series, six part drama. So there's a few things I'm working on, but, um, I'm enjoying my time at home at the moment. (laughs) Mr. Clark, thank you so much for your time. This was terrific. You're welcome. So many great stories about that. I'm so glad that it was as fun to make it as it is to watch it. Oh, it really was. It was wonderful. And, and we knew it at the time and you know, it's uh, you don't, you don't get to work on too many films that are as much pleasure to make as they are to watch. Normally they they can be a lot tougher and a lot more stressful, but that one was a play. Every day was such a pleasure. It was amazing. And the, the incredible thing was um, because we were shooting over winter, um, we got to stay in some of the most incredible hotels in, um, we had an apartment down for most, the most part down in South Africa um, to stay in. But when we were in India, we, there are all these hotels that were empty um, and we managed to stay in just incredible places. So, and we shot in some of the hotels as well, certain sequences. So it was brilliant. Wonderful. Great fun. back and we were talking about the fall so did you guys have a chance to see yo ho ho i know it's a little difficult to watch stuff without subtitles but kind of okay to follow this even though i can tell there's like wordplay going on in this and of course i am completely without knowledge of what wordplay is happening like one person pronounces a word and then the other person pronounces it differently and then i think it changes the meaning but who knows what that means i watched the film Basically left it as long as I could go, thinking, oh, well, I'll watch it well enough. Yeah, I right. I, I guess I'd better watch it. And I'm glad that I'd watched the fall a couple of times before watching this. I mean, I don't think that it's as, you know, it's not supposed to be as metaphorically rich as the fall is. It looks like it's a more straight telling of the story. The basic outline is the same, you know, a young child in hospital being told a story by someone, but there's none of the drama, the tension between Roy and uh, Alex, like there is with, uh, I think the boy's name is Leonid, and I can't quite remember the name of uh, the guy who's lying flat on his back, who I think is supposed to be an actor. But it looks like it's a straight telling of the story. I gather that there's 
some sort of level that he's feeling depressed and he might want tablets the same way that Roy does to top himself, but I never get the impression really that he's suicidal. This is not like meant to be criticism either way of this one film over the other. It's just a, a mood-wise, it's a different film. Story-wise, I think it's a very similar film. I mean, we, we get bits that are the same, like the... Uh, the character who cuts the rope to get rid of the baddies who are climbing it after him so that uh, our hero can go on his mission to kill the main bad guy. Uh, you know, lots of superficial bits, but I think, like, Mike, you and I were having a type discussion uh, over the week thinking that one thing that we both really wanted to know was the th – there were two guys who were sharing the hospital room with the main guy, and there was – um uh, the big one who might have been uh, like the, the, who, who Walt was in the fall. And he seems to be getting more and more aggressive to both Leonid, the boy and the actor as the film goes on. And I really wanted to know what was his beef. I mean, I'm, I, I don't know that it was necessarily, you know, I could still follow the story and it's obviously like a one part where he is the sub, he's the bad guy in the pirate tale, obviously. But I'd love to know what it was that was really getting his goat. I wonder if they were playing with this whole immigrant thing again, because that feels like kind of Walt's beef with Alexandria is that she is this little immigrant girl and he I mean, he's just not a good guy. The way that he hits his kid in the one scene, it's like, wow, that was really a, a good hit that he just get, gave that kid. And then I think he even uses some uh, some slurs against Alexandria to try to get her out of the room. He has to be the center of all attention, what with his uh, hypochondria. It's just that it feels like such a, a need for him. Like, oh, Doc, it's like an elephant sitting on my chest. And I kind of wonder if that's where the elephant in the story comes from, is taking that from uh, from Walt's complaints. It's hard to know in the in the Bulgarian version. I mean, on, on the one hand, because, I mean, Leonid does have a bit of a an attitude he might do the guy's in an all uh, a sort of all-male adult ward this kid comes in maybe he's just annoyed by the child it's, I mean, it's hard to know without actually having the subtitles but I'm saying for me it's as you say I mean it's it's not as metaphorically rich um I know from having spoken to people that it, it's a very popular film in Bulgaria it was a very popular film sadly uh, no subtitles but to me like I said it, it seems much more rooted in the specific time and place and the scenes in the hospital to me they feel almost you know it's, it's clearly trying to look at kind of contemporary social problems and i'm sure there's actually some discussion of health care in there i can't quite make out what it is but i'm pretty sure it's in there it feels to me a little bit closer to socialist realism whereas the story the pirate stories are the imagination breaking away from the kind of dour style of socialist realism you know to me it's about it's about the fact that they might tell you how you can make movies and how you can write stories but the one thing you can't censor the one thing you can't fetter is a child's imagination you know children are children are born surrealists essentially and and they're you know until you manage to kind of educate them out of it they're just gonna they're gonna fantasize about what they want to fantasize about and no matter how kind of tall the tale is uh, and and this kind of dull reality is you can escape it in your mind so i mean it seems to be doing a very interesting thing possibly even you know for the early 80s in, in an eastern bloc country quite a subversive thing talking about the power of the imagination over reality but without hearing the dialogue i mean i i, I 
didn't it didn't seem to have quite the same level of fantastical imagination that Tarson's film does. Are you guys familiar with Axe Cop? No, I'm not. No. So you're talking about the unfettered imagination, and, and Axe Cop began as a web comic by these two brothers, one who was five years old and the other one who was 29 years old, at least when this started. And basically, the five-year-old would tell stories and the 29-year-old would draw the stories as an amazing comic artist. And it is, uh, it's basically this kid just telling this story. It's like, oh yeah, there's this cop. His name is Axe Cop. And he, <laughs> he just, and like, A-X-E, he has an axe. Yeah, he has an axe and he just goes around and he, you know, he helps Bat Warthog Man and all of these things. And it just, it just, you know, goes in that direction. And yeah, you just get to see how wild kids' imaginations are. And this guy faithfully renders everything that his younger brother says. He just makes a drawing out of it and it became this big thing. But yeah, it's, uh, I highly recommend looking it up. I haven't watched the cartoon, but I've read the comics. And they, they're just wild because they go in every direction. There is nothing that holds back the imagination of a five-year-old. One day at the scene of a fire, the cop found the perfect fireman axe. That was the day he became Axe Cop. Episode one. I need a partner now. So Axe Cop had tryouts and hired a partner. My name is Flute Cap. Sign up here. We have a gang of dinosaurs to kill. So the new team went to the land of volcanoes and fought the gang of dinosaurs with their axe and flute. I'll chop your heads off! So they cut the mother and father dinosaur heads off, then devised a plan. I've just I've just looked it up. Uh, yeah, okay, I'm gonna read that. <laughs> there's a cop on the cover. It, it looks like it's a tribute to um, John Woo's Hard Boiled. So he, oh, there's wow. a cop holding an axe across his shoulder rather than a shotgun, but he's clearly doing the Chow Yun Fat, and he's cradling a baby, but the baby's sucking its thumb, but also has a unicorn horn. This is, is quite a baby. Arranged. Yeah, as is a baby, baby yeah. pissing on his leg. Uh, I'd have to go close to that, but that would be a very nice touch. It doesn't go in far <laughs> enough to see the pissing down the leg, but it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I want to say it, it sounds like to me that when the stories are being told that they're maybe speaking Spanish or there's some Spanish being spoken, which I think uh, – I'm trying to remember what movie we were talking about recently where the it was a remake – of or an adaptation of something and the author uh, the the director or the writer was basically like i am doing this from my memory of this other thing because that's what yo ho ho and the fall feel like it feels like tarsum remembered parts of this and told it to dan gilroy or something like something happened but it doesn't feel like a direct adaptation, it feels like the memory of an adaptation. So there are things like, oh yeah, the bad guys are Spanish. So that becomes like the, the people in the x-ray mask soldier type things. They all are Spanish soldiers. Or there's the ruse where, uh, Oda Benga character where he's got the fish and he's selling the fish and then the rest of the group are hiding behind the basket. So there are like little moments that you see through here, but it's more just like an echo of, 
Yo-Ho-Ho that manages to go into the fall. And it does take such a, a large leap in a different direction. Like, okay, yeah, there's a guy telling a story in a hospital two other guys in the in the hospital bed and the the story is about an indian a black guy and this other guy and then yeah just it, take that and then create something completely different out of it and now you have the fall i like your suspicion that the film as i like your suspicion that yo ho ho may be a commentary on the state of the eastern bloc you know in the early 1980s uh, and obviously to do the same thing in the fall, you know, 25 years later would really not, I guess, be appropriate. It would not have been a current thing. But, um, I just remembered something that I was going to say like a, a couple of minutes ago about that, which is, um, even though Yo Ho Ho isn't working with the same sort of color palette that we get in, uh, the fall, but it's, Still, once again, we come to Leonid's imagination, which is pretty colourful, versus the dour look of the hospital. I think even more so that's shown in uh, Yo-Ho-Ho than it is in The Fall. I mean, you know, the, the Fall, obviously, doesn't look quite as beautiful and bright and brilliant in the real world as it does in her imagination. But we still get outside shots of the sunshine and... But everything is grey in that hospital, and I'm sure that that's some sort of reflection on uh, on the, the state of the Eastern Bloc at the time. So, um, yeah, I guess you know, to your point, Mike, this was a fairly daring film being disguised as maybe a children's story. I never would have thought about the whole idea of the social realist thing, which I think is a, a great Great way to think about that. Credit to you, Brian. Thank you. Because <laughs> I don't remember who said what, but it's just a good <laughs> conversation. It's funny because I was also I was reading a, a Reddit group and somebody was bringing up the idea that there's another story that this is reminiscent of too, which is Dennis Potter's The Singing Detective, and this whole idea of a guy being bound to a bed and having, you know, and telling this story, or at least imagining this story. In this one, he doesn't have anybody that he's telling it to, but it becomes this wild tale of of all this stuff. And then the characters, again, from his real life are being worked into this story as well. So it's almost like there's this whole theme of bed-bound people <laughs> telling stories. And I was even thinking, like, well, I guess Johnny got his gun by Dalton Trumbo. That's a, that's a little bit like that, too, as he's sitting in the – or laying in the hospital bed and remembering all of these things. And that becomes – the book or the movie is his reminiscences and then contrast that with his horrific real world experience that this guy's going through. There's probably a, a subgenre of films and uh, books where people are in hospital beds and either telling stories or thinking of stories. Well, not that it's a storytelling related exercise, but because you mentioned Potter, didn't he write Brimstone and Treacle? And that featured uh, a character who was basically bed bound for most of the film that's that's a film that really doesn't get enough love or isn't remembered that much but oh, that was an absolute solid favorite of mine when that came out which one there's two two brimstone and treacles yeah there's a tv version for the bbc which some people think is better and then there's oh, the wow. cinema version with sting i think yeah i i remember at the time buying the uh the 45 single of um sting singing uh spread a little happiness 
And um, it was just such a great contrast to what the story was actually about. And he did a great job, credit where it's due. Dennis Potter's body of work is very interesting to me, especially because of the way that he would get adapted time and again. Like, you know, I, I The Singing Detective was also a movie by uh, uh, Projection Booth favorite Keith Gordon. And yeah, you said Brainstone and Treacle was done a couple of times. Pennies from Heaven was the Steve Martin version in the, the miniseries. So it's just amazing to see how his work was adapted and readapted. And I, I really owe it to myself. I need to go watch track 29 one of these days. I mean, I've just slowly been making my way through Nick Rogue stuff and to know that it's Nick Rogue and Dennis Potter. I think I kind of owe it to myself. Do, but don't get your hopes too, too high. It's one, one of those ones where that I think the two personalities kind of clash and partly cancel each other out. Rogue's behaving himself for the most part visually, and Potter's not doing some of his more outre stuff. It's 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 one of those films that it's it's underrated, but it's not going to ever be in the same league as the six Rogue films that come before it. Uh, the only thing I want to bring up is that I've just found a poster for Yo Ho Ho, which is wonderfully literal. It looks like a sort of Jolly Roger. It's got a pirate boat on it, but instead of having two cross swords, it's a cross sword with a walking stick. I saw that. That's great. It is, it is, yeah. It's not as good as the poster for The Fall, but it's it's kind of awesome. <laughs> yeah, one thing that I didn't realize is that, uh, you know, we keep talking about uh, The Wizard of Oz in this, and that Tarsum, I think he was the producer of uh, Emerald City, which came out a couple years ago, uh, which is, I don't know if it, uh, how it relates to, if it's before The Wizard, if it's after, if it's other side stories, because... I mean, if folks don't know, um, and I hope they do, Wizard of Oz was just one book of many, and there were so many different Oz stories. And then even going back and reading The Wizard of Oz, the original, I mean, there's a lot more than just Munchkinland going on in there. There's a ton of different lands that Alice, or sorry, that Dorothy goes through before she gets to Emerald City. It plays out a very different than the movie. Now, I haven't watched them all, but I. I bought the Blu-ray of The Wizard of Oz a few years back, and it seems like there must be about five or six Oz films prior to the famous one that we all know and love. So, wow. And then Walter Murch's Return to Oz, that movie will fuck you up. I watched that the first time recently because someone said that to me. Only for me, the first 20 minutes were good. I thought that it, it, it kind of you know tanked for me. But uh, the first 20 minutes lived up to the promise that I was expecting, which was a traumatizing children's film. But the rest of it wasn't traumatic enough, I think. But I had just shown an entire season of tra- traumatic films about childhood, and it just didn't quite <laughs> live up to things like um, Leolo and, you know... Uh, films like that but no i mean emerald city is interesting um thompson i think directed all 10 of them i'm not sure if he was the showrunner but he, he is the visual kind of overseer of it and it's interesting donofrio's back i wasn't sure what to think of it there's some good stuff in it and there's clearly some bits where the budget isn't maybe quite up to what Tarsum's trying to do visually. Um, but, I mean, clearly the fact that he was brought in for all ten episodes means that he must be a Wizard of Oz fan, right? It's it's kind of hard to make a film like The Fool and not be, though. The whole idea of Mirror Mirror being a retelling of the Snow White story, there's a moment in The Fall where Alexander is trying to get Roy to wake up and she is kissing him kind of like... Um, the uh, Prince Charming is kissing Snow White to wake her up. 
So it was kind of a nice nod there. And I have to say, I don't mind Mirror Mirror. There were, what, there were like two movies? It was one of those weird Hollywood things where was, there were two movies that were put out right around the same time. It was uh, Charlize Theron was in one, and then Julia Roberts was in the other. I, I think that Tarsum's film wins out, but it's kind of like one of those, you know, world's tallest dwarf kind of things where, which is appropriate because there were a lot of little people in the cast of this, including another projection be favorite, Danny Woodburn was uh, grim in this movie. It was the better film and it is an interesting movie, but you can tell you're not going to work for Disney and not have to make some serious compromises. I mean, and it just, it was one of these things I was, I guess in my mind when Mirror Mirror came out, I, I was half expecting it to be like something like um, Jack Clayton, something wicked this way comes where you can kind of see the film that Clayton's trying to make and the film they're trying to steal away from him. But this felt like, a, a reasonably safe movie directed by someone who visually speaking is is bordering on genius i mean there was some great stuff in it but it just didn't have the the edge but you're right it was it was it was the better film it wasn't a te- it wasn't a terrible experience um but it wasn't something w- w- this way comes either so i'll wow, talk about traumatic childhood films you're kind of an expert there yeah i said that whole season it was great fun <laughs> did to show the never ending story no uh never ending story was considered too light Oh God! <laughs> oh, it was it was um it was just seriously traumatic. I'll try and dig up the list, but it was it was kind of crazy. It was the season was called Bloody Kids. It was just brutal. Uh, I think Leola was the was the crowning achievement, though. I, no one really saw that one coming. Um, but yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. Can I ask if you're talking about traumatic films about childhood or teenage years? Did you show the War Zone? We did. Oh, you horrible man. Tim Roth. Tim, Tim yeah. Roth. Was it Gilbert Adair who said it was a film that had no right being made? I don't know, but I'll 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 take I'll take credit. I, I say it's a film that had no right being made. Ferocious film. Um it's really worth seeing, Mike, but it's it's Tim Roth's only film as a director. He's never gone made around the same time that Gary Oldman did Nil by Math, actually. And neither have ever gone back to making another film, so they feel very personal. But um, basically, Ray Winston and Tilda Swinton have two children, and it slowly transpires that Ray Winston's abusing his daughter, and it's really, really dark, strange, very interesting film. But um, I saw an interview with Ray Winston where he said he had to get the girl who played his daughter come live with him for two weeks so he could see, so she could see that he wasn't actually a monster. It's like, come live with my family, see me with my real daughters, because uh, I'm not like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fierce film, but yeah, that that was that was part part and parcel of the season. That was one of the older children, though, because it was it was normally it was kind of destructive right. films about very young children. And there was a bit of levity, like we showed um, Borman's Hope and Glory, which is a good traumatic film about children. You know, it's kind of it's it's the war as trauma, but also giant playground. Oh wow! On that bleak note, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Deset, dvacet, třicet, čtyřicet, čtyřicet osm, padesát, padesát, tenkrát. To ještě existoval, tam ten svět ještě existoval. Tady někde se to stalo. Přežila to spousta lidí, zbylo nás dost. Lidí, zvířat i stromů. 
To až potom začalo všechno ubývat, lidí, zvířat i stromů. Ale ještě hráli biografii, ještě jezdil vlak. Byla jsem mladá a lidí ubývalo. Odcházeli z měst. Tady, tady někde jste se narodili. V těch letech umírali i poslední lidé. Byli jsme v horách. Někde tady jsme se vydali na cestu. Bylo vám kolem deseti, dvanácti let. Pak roztrhali při posledního chlapce. Tady někde se utopila Helena. A, a tady umřela Marie. That's right. Next week we kick off September with a look at the end of August at the Ozone Hotel. That we'll be releasing the episode in September. It won't be the end of August, but we're not going for that. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Morris and Brian. Morris, what is up down under, sir? Well, in the podcasting world, uh, later on this month, I'll be recording for C here. Uh, we'll be doing an interview with a a podcaster who's done a real passion project film. His name is Kevin L. Poor, and he's made a film called Long Playing. Uh, so it's he's basically gone and interviewed hundreds of people, it seems, about their love of records or vinyl. And um, I, I, unlike a lot of talking head type films, I really think this one works a a treat. I really, really dug it. And there's all these little interjections in between each section. So each uh, section of the film is a question where people answer them. And then it's treated like a track on an album uh, in that regard. So uh, I really, really dug that. So looking forward to speaking to uh, Kevin uh, and the Love That Album episode uh, later on this month, which I'm very sad about in a way because uh, uh, Eric Peterson is no longer going to be doing any Love That Album after the end of the year. So I figured it was time that we actually did a show together for a change. So we're going to be talking about our favorite songs from the Nuggets box set, the wonderful Lenny Kay project put together um, originally in the early 70s and then expanded to four CDs worth of uh, 60s garage music hits. So I'm um, looking forward to that. And just one final thing I wanted to put in a plug for for anyone living in Melbourne uh, in November. So keep November 9th free if you're interested. Uh, earlier on this year on C here, we interviewed uh, a director, Paul Elliott, about his film, The Library Music Film, which is a fantastic documentary about library music. And I said, you know, can we get a screening here in Melbourne? He said, well, uh, put me in touch with someone. I wasn't able to. So I said, darn it. I'm going to find a way to screen it. So basically, I'm renting out a cinema and I'm paying cinema fees and I'm paying licensing fees and I'm running a screening of the library music film and we're going to do a by Skype a Q&A with the director, Paul Elliott. That's going to be at Long Play in North Fitzroy uh, on November the 9th. So um, keep that date free. Any Melbourne listeners of the booth would be lovely to see you. The film uh, Long Player, is that going to get an international release? Do you know well, I still think in a way that he's, it's, the film's been, uh, in one form of production or another for like a, a few years now. I think he's still like going through a Kickstarter to get final post in, but I've had a chance to watch it. I think it's like close enough to finish as all get go, but he's put up on, um, uh, on a website the individual segments 
not as an entire film. I mean, I've seen it as a one long consecutive film, but I think the individual segments that are in the film are available on his website. I can provide you with a link, Mike, if you're interested and you can share that round if you're interested. But, um, yeah, I'll send that, I'll send that to you, Brian. Uh, but yeah, really interesting film and looking forward to, uh, speaking to, um, to Kevin, um, in, I think next week. So that'll be good. And Brian, what's happening for you? Are you uh, done traumatizing children? Uh, no, no, ne- never done, never done. No, so term starts back at uh, the University of Dundee in September. Um, just just uh, finished editing a book on British art cinema, which is my revenge on my PhD. Um, my PhD was on British art cinema, but I, I only published a few chapters from it, so I've just co-edited the book um, with a colleague, and it's got about 20 different essays on British art cinema, ranging from the silent films of Asquith and Hitchcock to uh, stuff, you know, very, very recent stuff by way of of drama because that's that's a nice thing to get off my plate um as always behind on other essays i've done some an unfilmed script of lawrence of arabia by terence rattigan um i need to finish that pronto and then write something on william walton's music for the three lawrence Olivier shakespeare films but um always run the film society dundee we do about 50 probably about 50 screenings a year actually one every usually every tuesday the current the current season is actually psychedelia and surrealism so um this tuesday we will be inflicting um Andrzej Zolowski's The uh, Third Part of the Night on some unsuspecting people, uh, which is always fun. And that will be followed by, I'm going to love this, an altered state Zardoz double bill. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. Talk about bringing Beethoven's Seventh Symphony Allegretto movement into the story. Absolutely. In the original script of that, actually, Morris, in the original script, it's an organ piece by Bach. And I think that Borman wrote it saw Solaris and thought, no, I can't use that. Yeah. <laughs> I can see that. Yeah, so I think happened. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So looking forward to that. And then when the students come back in the first week, second week of September, we usually have like the last screening of our current summer season as the first screening to kick them off. So for the unsuspecting children who know the name but don't know much about David Lynch, we're going to make them watch Inland Empire. Oh, that's on my docket for next week. I've been invited to the Culture Cast for their 300th, I think 300th episode. Or might be 600th, I don't know. But anyway, Chris has asked me to watch that movie again. So that'll be my first time seeing it since I saw it at the movie theater. It's, I think it's beautiful, unfiltered David Lynch. It's great stuff. Yeah, it's just like they took the safeties off and he yeah. just went off. Yeah, it's nice. I'll enjoy that. Thank you. And you too. I'm, I can't wait to hear the reactions from the audience. <laughs> yeah, I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.